Hello, everyone, and welcome to Radio Free Golgotha. My name is Al, and I am very happy to be here. What's your name, Jesse? Depends on when, what's your, yeah, which, which <laughs> club we're talking about. That wasn't uh, so much a leading question as a closed question, right? Yeah, I'm <laughs> Jesse, what's yours? Or the, you know, I'm yours, what's Jesse? But uh, yeah, hi. It is, it appears that we are striking lightning twice, striking gold twice, striking something twice. The river flows both ways. I'm going to leave these other things that should feel like they're making sense, but I'm really just going to... Did you see that TED Talk that was about giving a TED Talk where he spoke in gibberish first and talked about the creation of meaning? Because that's kind of what I feel like right now, about it's just gibberish until it's not. So, hi, everyone. Welcome to Radio Free Golgotha. I just said it like Al does because he says that usually. I say Golgotha as an American. I do. And Al says Golgotha as a Brahmi. And so, hi, welcome. Thank you for joining us a second time. In the month, that's actually what I was trying to go for, is that we are casting the pood out into the world. Uh, Heck yeah. This episode, another very special episode, brought to you by the Feast of Michaelmas. Uh, we're going to talk about the Archangel Michael. We're going to talk about various other angels of Angelmas, as sometimes known as well. We're also going to be flipping back and forth between angels and devils, as is our want. Uh, and so this episode is also brought to you by the demon Belial. Uh, and so we'll be talking uh, not just grimoires, uh, but also a little bit of uh, Milton and some other bits and pieces, depending on where we go. Uh, along with those big themes, those big players, we have a, a variety of the, the materials and, uh, and methodologies that we like to discuss. This episode is hopefully going to be brought to you by discussing the virtues of the pearl, as well as mustard, uh, the mustard seed, both black and white. We're also going to be talking about the major arcana, the emperor, the geomantic figure, Conjunctio and its counterpart Odu. We're going to be discussing the dead magician Dion Fortune a little bit. And hopefully we'll also be discussing some of the broader and maybe even deeper, who knows, uh, ramifications of angel magic as a genre or a practice in general. Uh, and maybe it's putting the, the cart before the horse, but I'm really interested in this interplay uh, in these themes and how we kind of brainstorm them together with this, yeah, again, with this interplay of the angelic, of messengers, of stirring things, of things that accrue over time and in layers, and of the, the points of significance, the, uh, again, to come back to Chumley, the points of transmutability. And Michaelmas is a, is, is, is a big one for me in terms of, we'll get into this, lots of, a lot of people feel a variety of very particular ways about that particular archangel, but it's a, a day of significance historically, economically, politically, as well as theologically and religiously. And it's, um, it's, uh, it's, 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 it's a big day. You know, we stand on the edge of autumn, supposedly. I was thinking about that too, like the fall and how much we're going to end up talking about falling off to, to, to Belial. Well, I like the relationship and we, in the previous episode for the we did talk about demonization i think demon as a larger concept is something that will always continue to be explored in fact we're exploring it through specific ah, specific i can't speak pacific and atlantic exemplars but the notion it's really interesting to i mean from a purely orthodox christian 
belief stance. If, if we're going to talk about demons, which we do every episode, it's interesting that we rarely talk about angels. We talk about saints, but we don't, we, we have spoken about Saint Raph, which is its own interesting part where like the idea of saints as dead, holy people doesn't necessarily fly when you're talking about angels and this kind of division between the rewarded dead that are in heaven already, as well as the angels who have never truly left the presence of God in some way, except for those fallen brethren. So I think, yeah, welcoming the fall with the fall of those fallen. And it, it ends up being some kind of weird Veterans Day, if I put it that way, uh, <laughs> which is quite interesting. The, for those of you that are about to engage in the holy apocalypse at every moment of every day, we welcome you and salute you. There was, there was on that random note, I remember there was a priest in the 90s who was, he, he got very acclaimed for it. And I know, I know Fox did kind of pick up on this a little bit too. So maybe it was his assertion, but the battlefield of the apocalypse would be in the soul of every single person individually. That this is that Armageddon is internal. And there's a, a lovely shift there in uh, the nineties was an interesting time for publishing things, right? There was a lot of kind of esoteric Christianity that was starting to be published. That was uh, at the same time shelf neighbors with the increasing witchcraft, new age, neo-pagan publication. But before we get all to that, because I mean, there's nothing more new age than angels and the language of light and the, <laughs> all these things that are currently and always going. Michaelmas itself, as far as a celebration of the Archangel Michael, it is now angelmas, right? Like it, it is not just Michaelmas. It is a feast for all angels, especially the big three, because the, there is a tradition of this is the feast of named angels specifically, if we want to be, you know, Specifically, if we want to be specific about the Pacific and the Atlantic again. Wow. Okay. Saurus pills. But the, traditionally, there was also the Feast of the Unnamed Angels, which is a separate thing. And now in post-Vatican II, there is this effort towards combining all angels are equally celebrated, all the choirs on September 29th. Formerly, there was the 18th of March for St. Gabriel, which is very near the Annunciation. And the 24th of October for St. Raph, which is still recognized, but is not on the calendar the same way. They are all celebrated with Michael. And that, that naming, yes, seems significant. Sometimes you do get the feast of St. Michael, St. Gabriel, and St. Raphael is a big old mouthful that just, you know, obviously rolls off the tongue. This is interesting. We also, of course, have, if we're going to start with the complications of getting at this, we have the idea of Old Michaelmas as well, which is dated variously October. 10th or 11th, because as the calendar progresses, not only is it about a shift from Gregorian and, Ju uh, and Julian calendars about a certain number of days, that number of days increases every hundred years, except in leap years. So roughly October 10th or 11th, we can say, is the old date. Um, and then we have uh, New Michaelmas right at the end of, of September now in our contemporary calendar. Yeah, we get them all together. We get to consolidate all our existing devotions into one, hopefully easier to manage day. So do you want to start with, with is, are we better off starting with Michael or are we better off starting with Michaelman? I think, I mean, we can absolutely cursorily quickly try to give service to Michael. I think, I mean, it is the reason for the season, right? It is, this is an interesting side of this more than usual. Usually when we talk about saints, we're talking about the saints and their overarching, I hate the word archetype, but the various parts that could be used by the various carsis that are out there. Yeah. Uh, metaphorical, not necessarily literal carsis. But the difference now is that we're talking that especially you can't talk about this feast because we have the feast then we discuss the saint that is on that feast usually, or some extrapolation from that that is, is yeah. related. And here specifically, the Feast of Michaelmas is so much of its own thing 
that is the it is not even the angel that gets conflated or secretized so much, but just the importance of the festival itself is its own container for so many other things. And I, again, I, I think what you're saying of like the autumnal uh, location of it is very important. Going into the fall and going into the final harvest of the end of October, whether you you know harvest home, whether that's the second harvest or the third harvest, depending on local traditions, and there are different traditions of what those are. But I that long winded lit was just to say, Saint Michael, good Dan, leader of the armies of heaven. If you're a weird Christian, well, that's really I don't mean that in a judgmental way. I mean it in a it's the not standard version of Saint Michael becomes Jesus in some Christian denominations, which is not a leap. It's a, it does have yeah. How do you say it? when it's not quite written down, but it's uh it can be inter- loosely interpreted that Saint Michael extends his avatar beam into Jesus, that before the incarnation of the Christ, that it was St. Michael in heaven. And this makes a lot of sense if we're going to go by the early uh, etymologies of the name, and we're going to talk about Michael Michael as often translated as uh, he who is like God or who is like God, either as a question or as a statement. Like there is this sense of an especially holy prominence to Michael, which lends all Michaeline things a certain sacredness, for want of a better term, not that that's playing particular favorites, but that this idea of like emergent angelical hierarchies put him generally at the top, right? Protector, vice regent, uh, there's, some, there's some psychopomp stuff in the British Isles I'm a little more familiar with, especially around the medieval Michaeline business. But whether or not you're talking about various like late pagan syntheses or the fact that he's a good Jewish boy, a good Jewish messenger spirit, whether you're talking about his prominence in Islamic law and exegesis, in the, like the tafsir and things like that. I apologize for my accent there. Uh, or indeed, if you're getting full into Christian angelology. And so there is this sense that like he's especially important leading the, the armies of light against the, the sons of darkness that we'll talk a little bit more about. And we do have a variety of, of, of bits and pieces where he's named. And like you said, that's a significant part. Uh, later hagiographies, angelical hagiographies, will start to, to get at, well, there was an angel or there was a dream or a message or an important spirit of God moving in the world. And that gets attributed a name later. Often if it's a message, if it's Gabriel, often if it's like healing something, it's Raphael. And if it's the might of God in many ways, it's uh, Michael. And we see that expressed, I think, in one of the classic tensions in the, not tensions, but two slightly divergent streams of angelology in the, the Christian grimoires, at least, where Michael is placed variously, depending on the system, do you have a system, as found in or, 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 or ruling over or emergent out of the heavens or the sephirah of the, of the sun in Tiferet or Hud and, and Mercury. And so where Raphael is at Mercury, we have Michael at the sun. And again, the idea of the son of God again coming in. Uh, and in other grimoires, we flip those around and Michael maintains this role as messenger. And I would argue in a mercurial cast, there's a little bit more evocative of those like psychopompic roles where we see him holding a, a scale of justice of weighing the souls as opposed to the, the classic buckler and spear or sword pointed downward at the devil underfoot. I mean, it'd be interesting to track, like if I had done homework for this episode, being the different expressions of Michael, because it, it has taken on these different roles as wearer of souls, as a informant angel of death, like the, as the one that you will meet when you die. Some of the cultic statues of Michael not having a face or having a mirror 
as only the people who have died see the face of St. Michael, which also brings up that story of the angel of death and prominent archangels at the end of time with Allah that is also we've talked about before. But this idea that, especially in Latin America, there, this cult of the souls got really off to its own. It, 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 it got open sourced and people ran with it, right? So we see the anima solas in Italian lore and the praying to a collective of purgatory. But it's in Latin America and specifically in Mexico where you find the first evidence, material evidence of specific souls being prayed to in purgatory. And that anima sola, the classic anima sola, but there's also, this is primarily because anima is a, the soul is a female word in Latin and therefore in Latin derived languages. But eventually you also see other named spirits being prayed to, for, it's a weird blur, of course, and magic being worked through them, but are also directly not just under the Virgin, especially like the Virgin of Mount Carmel, but St. Michael, that there are animas showed around the feet of St. Michael as a, as a figure who can be appealed to to shift the balance in some way, even though that's not technically what the prayers are supposed to be about, right? Yeah. We talked about that with Mary and pulling people out of hell. It's not, it's supposed to be the person's good deeds or living people praying for them. But St. Michael becomes a focus for this. So you do see a lot of imagery in Latin America of St. Michael with no reference of casting out the devil in some statues and another references being the only thing that's casting out the devil. I do think that there is a conflation or in Iberia, there is a larger, perhaps kind of pushing Michael to this psychopompic role because Mm -hmm. the the cult of of St. James the Greater becomes so huge in the Reconquista that, that if you have devil imagery, and you have the kind of repertoire plays that are being done where you have the Christians and the Moors or the Reds and the Blacks or any of these terms that are being used to show casting evil out where it was St. James was the force that did this. You know, this kind of resurrection of the St. James cult, which then co-ops the pilgrimage of, of Santiago de Compostela that had been there before. We have this as a, as, but this idea of the tomb on the edge of the world. And St. Michael himself has a different role because of that, I think. That said, do you know or have you seen when this kind of prominent role of Michael in like the, by the time I can get familiar with it in 20th century magic, we know the kind of use of Michael as the patron of firefighters, of policemen, and many other paratroopers, uh, like, which makes sense for angels, right? But like the people who are fighting for the common good, and there's, I don't want to go into the whole political side of, those that implications there and the that's a larger argument of which we both have strong opinions about too but michael protects those who are fighting for the common good is the idea ultimately battling for triumph crucially right and triumph over darkness over evil over that which falls that which obscures that which lies to us those kinds of concepts yeah, yeah, and you see that even in the in the conflation, in, at least in the posture and the posing of statuary with uh, uh, Saint George as well in, in in various parts of the world as well. Again, this idea of like who is driving the spear down from heaven or the sword down from heaven towards again, yeah, the, the devil or the dragon underfoot. To so, the point, I've definitely seen a lot of statues that are of Saint George or Saint James be called Saint Michael. Yeah, yeah, Saint Michael is the container for these other warring saints for the good guys fighting, which is an interesting right. thing because if God is peace, then God needs something else to fight. But at the same time, we can talk about the flood and plague and, and pestilence. And those are things that, of course, what's that mean with the devil reminding you of like, I just cover metal, heavy metal, and and, <laughs> and all those other natural disasters are all God's work, not mine. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I just work here, man. And also the prevalence too of St. Michael in the Christian 
the appropriation in that huge way of, uh, into the Christian mythos in the same way that, that, that would hold prominence, although he's still obviously there, but you have Jibril or Gabriel holding that, that rank amongst Islam. And it's, uh, it's almost like they're, a lot of their attributes are not necessarily exchanged or traded, but it is a difference between like a solar cult and a perhaps lunar cult. But in, in that same way, that makes me think about, I always go back to, is it Weber or, or the value centers, but talking about like, if you're in the far north, the sun is a benefic force. If you're on the equator, the sun is a, is a very pulverizing, not necessarily nice force. So I think about desert cultures and the night is, is a different thing. And therefore a lunar angel might not, might be the way to, to emphasize a, a guide that is helpful as opposed to the cold north of Europe might be that the sun is good. The sun conquers everything. The sun. So it's, um, I'm not saying that as a hard fast because both have elements of both heavenly bodies. Well, you get Jibreel and Michael like purifying the prophet on his, his night journey from Mecca to Jerusalem, right? And also yeah. the subsequent like ascension to heaven. You also get the both of them, and Jibreel is often more specifically mentioned than Mikhail, in the divine intervention of these like thousands of angels coming down in, in the seventh century, the battle of um, Badir. Is it? Again, uh, my apologies for my terrible accent. Yeah, and this idea... Never of- apologized any other time. I don't know why you're apologizing. Nice. <laughs> uh. I think also just the something to say there is that Michael is a defender of, of God's way and Jabril is the messenger, ultimately. That this, these roles are very sacrosanct, right? And that they can absorb those other roles because that's what angels are. And it can bring up that whole discussion of are archangels by their nature the same thing as angels? Is it just a rate question or is it something fundamentally different? And we call them all angels. And- Historically speaking, it looks like early Jewish angelology, uh, and I would be delighted in being corrected on this as well, but only this, nothing more. Um, uh, doesn't have so many emphases on hierarchies until the captivity in Babylon that it's the previous to that you have this idea of yes every blade of every blade of grass angels are the ministers of God's message of of of, of Hashem's message of, of the world unfolding hopefully as it should but it's not until Babylon and afterwards that you start getting an understanding of there are more senior uh, there's a hierarchy to to these angelic messages as as well that seems to come in after that and then it's massively run with through through various Christian angel orgies, of course. And that leads to the ever important question, Al, of do angels have free will? <laughs> Depending on who you ask, right? This raises questions of when are you praying? When are you doing a charm? When are you invocating? And interestingly, as uh, when, we, when we get to her, hopefully, I, I noted that Dion Fortune is often credited as separating the ceremonial works of initiation from evocation. Yeah. And that we could argue that before then, this idea of inner and outer is not so much, certainly not respected in those in that terminology in medieval and early modern grimoires, right? To invocate an angel is to, the distinction between whether you're just praying, <laughs> just or directing something, is it get, gets very interesting. Is the, is the handle, is holiness a thing that can be created and instantiated by following the rules? And to what extent, once we've set those rules up, do we lay a trap of only praying with the mouth rather than with the heart? So this is, this is you know, a, a deeper issue. And, and again, when we get to, to talk to, about Milton and what you do when you're cast out. So not just do, do angels have free will, but the fallen angels lack free will is interesting to me as well. And even the allowance for temporal inculcation, I suppose, of as people 
start to emphasize individuality within Western culture more and more. Perhaps angels are also awarded some allowance of this against the orthodoxies of tradition. So I, I think that's something that I would love to, and Charles, I absolutely invite you to come onto an episode and, and pontificate with us, at us, use us as your angels. But yeah, I think there's this ultimate thing is that the idea that, like, I like the Islamic explanation that humans and jinn are born with free will and angels are not, which is also the angels are made of light the way that humans are made of earth. And jinn being smokeless fire, but there's an allowance that jinn are somewhere between humans and angel in that way, or could live as angel, which, you know, we've talked about with Iblis and, and the being raised, being a jinn, but raised as an angel and therefore can actually exert free will and therefore rebel. Uh, so the, this, uh, Islam solves this, um, Lucifer problem real quick, but Lucifer, as we've discussed in many ways, is nothing if not problematic in, in the correct ways it needs to be, uh, <laughs> So again, if we can't discuss demons without going into angels, we cannot discuss Michael without talking about Lucifer in some way. But Michael, I'm also very curious about this, especially with the reliance on the kind of Lurianic Sephirotic tree that's become standard in Western occultism as an expression of Tiferet and that middle pillar, the lightning path, and the kind of shifting between the almost material moon-like spheres and then the great gap before God. Michael becomes so huge in 20th century, and that continues on into 21st century, New Age angelology, that angels are somehow very personally concerned with whether or not you get your raise, whether or not you you know find the right man, whether or not the person who cuts you off in traffic will find their peace that day. And there can be different things as this goes, but Michael is definitely, he's popular. <laughs> And everybody has a strong opinion about what he does and their role in their specific cause and Michael's role in their specific cosmology in a way that I don't see as much with the other angels, the other named angels. And uh, well, we have, we have Michael, scripturally speaking, providing a number of like touchstones of what it means to be pious, what it means to fight against evil, what it means to be senior amongst your angelic hosts, as well as what it means to, to tell the truth. So in, in Jude, we have this notion that the, that the archangel Michael, while disputing with the devil, in this case, I think about the body of, of Moses, doesn't himself dare to condemn the devil, but instead argues, the Lord rebuke you, right? This idea of like, I'm pointing to the higher authority here. I'm not taking my, my authority beyond what it's for. So we have this idea that like Michael knows his place and that this is what you want from someone in charge, that they're also hopefully appealing to a, a, a higher power. Um, in some way. And then we get the, the, the direct sense of not just arguing with the devil, but actively warring, whether in heaven or upon the earth, specifically like the, the, the reference in Revelation uh, that Michael and his angels fight against the dragon and prevaileth not. The, the dragon prevaileth not. Neither was their place found anymore in heaven. So they are. It's him that gives the boot by that extension. So we have that literal sense of like in heaven and in the airs of earth between heaven and hell, Michael is, is kicking the devil out. Is, uh, is chasing the devil out. Then by Daniel, we've got a Michael identified as one of the chief princes who comes to help. And so again, this idea of like being at the aid or, or the certain sacred beck and call of, of certain prophets, at least. And it's also Daniel that, that has this in 1021, but I will show you the 
that which is noted in the scripture of truth, and there is none that holdeth me in these things but Michael, your prince. So again, this idea of like the seniority of Michael is, is, is again heavily emphasized. And then from these, from these exemplars, from these historiola, we have all this attendant stuff until, yes, until we get to 21st century light language. I also uh, love the patronage. You know, what, I, what we're really talking about is ultimately a policing force, which is a loaded term to call it. Right. In, in our modern political environment. But this is, there's something interesting to this idea of Michael being the question version of the name. That mm. Michael, the name for anybody that comes and shows you that you're on God, that God's on your side. That this idea that angels can use any material that they need to get God's will done. That who is the one that is like God or the ones that are helping you. It's, you know, we take that mm. kind of attribution of it's a saint because it worked type of thing one step further with Michael and be like, if you can be justified that God is on your side because the person who flipped you off is suddenly has a flat tire that for some reason has become identified with karma in the West, even from a very specific way, karma doesn't exercise itself in this lifetime. But when you only live once in the Christian worldview, that there's something to that, that there, I don't, I, I think there might be this kind of like crediting God with the things that we don't know who did it, but it was Michael was the one that did it uh, right. in some ways that the one who is like God, the one is who is doing God's work amongst us. Certainly the, the idea that Michael protects you in, in cars against being hit or danger but which also relies on the thing of like, who would you pray to? You would pray to St. Michael to make sure the balance tipped in your scale if you did meet an untimely death, right? So that idea that he covers the red masses and the blue masses, the red masses is a little more formal and more known, but the idea that red is the color of earthly authority and the arbiter, the, so the cardinals dress in red, but also lawyers and judges and things like this are dressed in red for the red mass. And the, that similarly, there's uh, it can also be a blue mass, which is people who are like the military or police, people who are in the public service of defense in some way. And this notion of earthly authority that like gives us a great set of meeting points to get all conjunctive about it for Michaelmas itself, yeah. right? Yeah, we're going there. That's great. Yeah, yeah. What happens to earthly authorities being engaged with that this the, the Michaelmas beyond its 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 theological stuff is one of the four quarter days of the of medieval Europe of these economic, like financial as well as academic and yet judicial, like calendricals, this secular ritual year, if we want to put it like that. You know, at the time the harvest is over and the bailiff of the manor would be doing the accounts for the year. This is when you pay rent. Right. How's that for, you know, giving, uh, rendering up to Caesar what is his, et cetera. Uh, until the 18th century, it's actually a holy day of obligation as well. Yeah. Uh, and that might be the case in some churches to, to this day. And so we get that idea of, of this being when uh, stock is taken, when we are mastering uh, our environment to be able to feed ourselves and our communities. That's where a lot of arms is done. It's also where you get the bannocks. Uh, the, the, the brents that are made often, again, with that kind of soul cake inflection of being yeah. made for the souls in purgatory uh, often or otherwise given to the poor that hopefully the, the rising wings lift all, all devotees. Did you have any experience of, of eating goose on Michaelmas? I know it's an airy British custom. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, not particularly, no. I mean, you, yeah, I, like you heard about it and there'd be like, into parades and stuff where uh, a model goose has been lovingly paraded. Yeah. So you get the idea of paying goose in Ireland as well, specifically to the landlords, as well as um, there's a, a way they'll bake goose in clay. And when the clay breaks, that's when the goose is cooked. Your goose is cooked. And I liked that, the idea of like triumphing over the outer shell with the fires of that which nourishes us. 
There's also the Blackberry Lord that's so tied to this feast day, or at least old Michaelmas that gets transferred to new Michaelmas. And the devil was cast out on this day and landed in a blackberry bush and curses it. In some versions, he pisses on it to relieve himself after the long journey down. And that, especially in Western Europe, in England, Cornwall, Wales, Ireland, Scotland, there is this parts of France, this idea that you don't eat blackberries after this day. They, yeah, they're so lore that there are this identification that they do start to spoil after that, things like that. But this is the great cutoff day of like, blackberries have something specific about them that invoke the devil. And so you get this grace period with this shifting of the calendar. So rather than just seeing it as like, oh, it's, it's uncertain. What's the correct answer? Bear it in mind that these feast days would also come on different days of the, the week and be celebrated when the weather was right for it. So, so this idea of like a spurious rigor, like, no, it is exactly 1201 on the 29th and nothing else is a rather new school phenomenon. So we get this grace period of like, okay, the 29th is Michaelmas and when, and tells you that you have but 10 days left to, to gather your blackberries while you may before they are spoiled. And that is where old Michaelmas is still kind of remembered. And there is that calendrical maths of being like, all right, around the 10th or 11th, you're not meant to uh, uh, be eating them because, yes, because the devil has, has spoiled them. In some contexts, that's like bowdlerized a little bit from whittling on them to, to spitting on them, both of which are, of course, not just derogatory actions, but also are often done to, to nullify the effects of things, as well as like territorial pissing. That idea of... Uh, of spitting on your own in your chamber pot as a charm against minor crosses or, or maleficium that might be thrown at you. So, I mean, the, it, he did land into brambles and thorns are, are shitty to, to land in. Right. So, right, right, right. And, and, and there is the lore of the, that some people conflate in that lovely way. Uh, it just makes me think of that. Is it the book of Donnell with the gold becomes silver becomes no. Yeah. Still angry about that. But the idea that the blackberry bush, the devil falls and is what the crown of thorns was made from. And this is very Western Europe, like local lore type of thing. But the, the because the crown of thorns is, if it was, there are thorn bushes in the Holy Land there and they're not blackberries. Um, yeah. But the idea that this mythic appreciation that puts it into a calendrical realm and an understanding of how things cycle through, that everything is related, everything serves a purpose, even the bad stuff is part of a larger mentality, right? That it's certainly informing like this idea of this Christianity that is not about orthodoxy, but about how people interpret the orthodoxy on an individual level. There's a bunch of things going on here. There's the devil as someone that goes around weeing on plants, right? And uh, which seems to be part of this older layer of the devil as trickster that can be outwitted potentially, not with the blackberry thing necessarily, but this wider idea of like causing the minor problems that we can avoid when we know the right ritual calendar, as well as just in general, the idea that like this proud light bringer and like the best of heaven who says, you know, maybe we don't coddle humans so much, if we want to put it like that, hits the ground and is then gone from this like luminous light bringer to this like pissed off exile like the, there is a shift in the behavior of, of the angel that will come to be known as the devil in that yeah i'm interested in this idea of what the fall does to the devil and we see that definitely in terms of uh belial which we, we can get to absolutely i feel if you want to jump into Bel- Bel- only because i don't want to say the way you're pronouncing it because i don't want to pretend like i'm i don't want you to think i'm making fun of the way you're pronouncing it because I, all things are are pronounceable in that way but i cannot pronounce it the way you're doing it because i can't remember it every time uh, <laughs> how do you say it belial very Americanized. 
this is the, you know, this feels like showing as well as telling that I read these etymologies of Belial, Belial as all being based in some kind of Hebrew, but I'm not quite sure how well versed these etymologists are in Hebrew. So like, oh, ever. The proud Christian tradition of, of mangling Hebrew terms uh, with well, your agenda. Why would you ever go ask anybody that actually speaks Hebrew? No, why indeed? Because then you're conversing with the devil. So inscrutable. Exactly when we're talking about devil. But we get this idea of an attribution, at least by by some people that think it's Hebrew, of uh, belay uh, being without worth. Uh, yeah. Sometimes that's bliol. Uh, 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 which is uh, translated as, as the, or glossed as the wicked one. I've also heard it as worthless one. And sometimes that worthless, without worth, right? Sometimes that's deliberately extended or adapted or modulated towards the one who lies specifically. And then we also get as added tenebrations and obfuscations that the name Belial Belial, however, is occasionally substituted or swapped out with Satan in certain biblical translations as well. So we have this idea of like the, ad, the being the adversary and being that figure, which will later be like pulled apart and anatomized in various ways by various grimoirists and, and demonologists. I'm not suggesting they're the same, but they are, they're conflated, shall we say. And another inverse hagiography, right? Of a, of a powerful chief devil and former angel specifically. So the Dead Sea Scrolls give us Belial as described as the leader of the sons of darkness, the chief of all devils by this kind of title, dedicated to destruction. One of the passages, one of the, the, the translations I found was, um, for corruption, thou hast made Belial an angel of hostility. All the dominion is in darkness and his purpose is in darkness and his purpose is to bring about wickedness and guilt. And in the, I, I never know how to say this, Cumbran uh, text, the, yeah. the Testament of Amdon, get Belial as one of the watchers and given these three titles of, of the name and also the Prince of Darkness, again, conflating the figure called Satan and the King of Evil as well. So we get some similarities here to this is kind of like devilish monism of like the, the, the chief devil in front of you is responsible for everything. And when it's another devil, you'll say they're responsible for everything as well. Same as like Azazel being ascribed all wickedness. Yeah. Right? By the time we get to the martyrdom of Isaiah or the ascension of Isaiah, which is said to be written somewhere between 70 and 170 common era, is an angel of lawlessness. And again, an angel of lawlessness, who is the ruler of this world. Again, be liar, right? And then a ton of appearances in the grimoires that we can get into. There's the... Last movie, The Blacksmith and the Devil, that's around. Um, one of the things that the demons explain to people in it is that it's guilt that drives you through the doors of hell. Mm. So you don't have guilt. You, it's very hard to force you to go through, which is just a larger thing to, to understand, too, of like if Belial is causing guilt for the things, it's, it's this thing. Of, I guess if there's like a breath for the innocent and the those who don't know, right, that perhaps if you don't know you've done something wrong or there was no intent to do something wrong there, uh, that you might not necessarily be going to hell for it. Mm. But the, I am fascinated by this idea of that guilt is what your password into the speakeasy of hell. And if Belial drives this idea um, moving forward or. What is it to be worthless? What is it to go against your oaths, right? Because to to not be taken at your word is is in a form is a form of worthlessness. To to not be trusted for your word, and there is a lot there. I know there are there's quite a bit of commentary on Belial. It is one of the demons, fallen angels that is most talked about, precisely because it is biblical. In the same way that Mike Lowe 
Raphael and Gabriel are, are mentioned and therefore have prominence amongst the angels or preeminence amongst the angels that Belial himself becomes the, another one of our kind of with, you, you were talking about this in our, our quick pre-chat of, of with Leviathan of being something that is known through all Christendom. And that's quite an accomplishment, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's legions of them. So to, to scramble to the top of the pile. Yeah. <laughs> so there's a, in terms of grimoires, we have like the Munich manuscript, uh, manual, the book of Abramelin. By the time we get to the early modern, we've got like mentions in the book of the Offices of Spirits in, in the Cambridge Book of Magic. Cult treatises, like the three books of cult philosophy and specific demonological texts like the Pseudomonarchia. Discovering witchcraft brings them in and gives this, what Jake calls like the long text passages of a couple of these senior spirits that are technically, like at least in, in, in Scott, I went back and looked at it. He doesn't have his own uh, subtitle. Uh, there's a, there's a, a note in the margin that now we're talking about Belial, but it comes after the course of quite a long discussion of, uh, of Paimon. And then we just jump into, so it might just be that there was, it was forgotten to put a subtitle in saying we're now talking about a different spirit, but the stuff that Scott's drawing on is from mostly the pseudomonarchia, but also some older traditions that are kind of garbled and kind of half remembered or reported on. So it begins saying that some say, which is that wonderful, you know, cut my basis. Some say that King Belial was created immediately after Lucifer. And therefore they think that he is the father and seducer of them which fell. And then there's this thing about like, but he tarries in heaven a bit. So he's, when he's made versus when he falls is not necessarily, like some, sometimes he falls before Lucifer and there's this like kind of conflation there of like uncertainty. So immediately Belial is not even being honest about their own origin story, especially however vehemently the spirit seems to want to talk about the fall. Yes. <laughs> even by the time you get to the modern expression, right? So pulling off of the Leviathan, Levian use, right? That, hmm. that by the time you get to the Satanic Bible, Belial is cited as meaning without a master. Hmm. And therefore, it, there's this reliance on non-servium in that kind of mythos there. So if for Lucifer to have, by extension, the kind of over-philosophizing of this implication amongst some more Luciferian and Satanic occultists tends to be like, in order for Lucifer to have the idea of rebellion, Belial must already be fallen. Right. Right. Because he's having the thought of rebellion and I do not want to serve, then in order for Lucifer to be tempted by this, if Lucifer is pride, then Belial is this first thought of, no, I don't serve. The, the, by non-servium uttering out of Lucifer's mouth, which is lovely uh, apocrypha in and of itself. There's something yeah, it's, to it's super interesting seeing like the four crowned princes of hell as it gets put in those kind of um, uh, more recent reiterations of some far older like demonologies. You know me, I'm a big fan of the four principal spirits of the directions mm -hmm. whenever they get called. So this idea of putting Lucifer in the east over air and Satan in the south over fire and Leviathan in the west over water leaves Belial in the north over earth, uh, if we're going to get elemental about it as well. Uh, Directly. That's super interesting, this notion of like uh, the references back to darkness, not just being of the airs uh, or even that conflation in other translations uh, with Satan, but this idea of the cold and the unmoving, the stubbornness of the earth and those kinds of things I find really interesting. You know how I bring up this term of it's only propaganda if you don't believe in it? Yeah. That's actually from a good friend's girlfriend who it was all watching The Exorcism of Emily Rose. <laughs> and Belial is actually the demon in that movie that says to possess the title character. And that movie has an interesting play in that it gives you both versions that she might just be suffering seizures and hallucinating and then also that she is truly being possessed. 
And, uh, you know, kind of that turn of the screw methodology. There is, there is a lilt towards, of course, the demonic because it makes a better movie. So that was the thing of like, is it propaganda for the kind of Christian worldview? And that was where it was first uttered to me, uh, uh, again, if you don't believe it. But I do think also, I think remember the prominent thing of Belial that is in, if for many of us, if you're a gamer at all, but Diablo, right, is like Belial is one of the principal bosses in the there we go again yeah that that made me think of a thing but i didn't want to cut you off in terms of like what's he so is he set over anything in particular oh it's been a while could have researched this but i know that like it's the in belil's city there's definitely like an arabic middle eastern overtone to everything and he is referred to as lord of lies i want to say like lord of deception or something like that too and regarded one of the four lesser evils in the mortal realm that are advocating for earth to become that that hell can expand its dominion onto earth fascinating all right yeah so that's really cool in terms of when we get to like the the politics of hell that milton has that particular demon uh expounding but the thing that makes me think of first is we talk a lot about like the plurality of folk traditions and that like sure a lemon can be used for a bunch of things and the specifics of it in one village don't negate the efficacy or the embeddedness or the cultural values being articulated by it being used in a different way in a different village. And I think we see that again with the seniority of devils, that like there are a bunch of these iterations of the dramatis personae and the exact bureaucracy of hell, but that he's this demon is, is, is usually prominent amongst them. So even in that, that long text, we get the idea of like the, uh, when Solomon encloses the legions in the brazen vessel, their chief was, was Biloth, and uh, the second was Belial and the third Asmodee. So we had another iteration of like, oh, these are the senior spirit, that uh, these are the senior kings of these demons, if not hell itself, along yeah. with the classic triumvirate of hell, Lucifer, uh, Belzebeth, and Astaroth, or Lucifer, uh, Belzebeth, and, and, and Satan, again, depending on the particular seats. And there's been good work on the Juratus to show that like, these aren't as jumbled as, as we think, They've just been certain prominence and, and, and arguably corruption of texts over time. But again, this idea of like, rather than looking at all these different hierarchies and being like, but which one's right, showing again that like, these are formulated for exorcism primarily, and does it do the job? And that we know that he's a senior spirit, and so we put him near the top. Well, I think also it's the kind of demand for singular names of things is also f- fairly new in the world's history. Like so many, it, I don't like the term older languages because all languages are literally equally old because they're all evolutions of something else. But at some point we have to acknowledge that there's, there might be languages that are more newly codified in their ways of, and certainly writing preserves language in a different way than oral tradition would languages. That is to say that there are many exemplars, many ways of thinking that do not involve a mountain having a single name or even there being a word for a mountain, but rather every slope of the mountain that has a different character has a different name and that a river can go by many names or that kind of the Greek or Roman interpretation, depending on which part of history you're going into that, like we acknowledge this deity as a form of our own, but therefore still call it by your name because I am in your land. So it gives me a, a, a launching pad with which to go off of. So if you call this Belial and I might call it Samael, or SSL or whatever these names are, it also leads to an interesting point of like, if we go back to Michael and, and think about like, uh, who is like God or Auriel and being the, the light of God or the medicine of God for Raphael and things like this, that is there a, a allowance that these are also what makes a value center of a previous group elevated to angel or dele- denigrated to 
demon? How does how does how does the god of light become the light of God with under new pretense? How does Bridget the goddess become Saint Bridget? How does any specifically it post uh, doctrine of discovery any deity discovered in any other part of the world uh, instantly as a demon? Uh, even if it does good things, and for all of Belial's, and maybe precisely because of all of Belial's like seniority in matters of of evil and darkness, it's striking that the form, which is not consistent in me- for many demons across different grimoires of how they cometh forth, is almost always the form of a beautiful angel, often specified as sitting in a fiery chariot as well, and that he speaketh fair, that he turns up in, in super angelical garb, not to be accepting of this role or as a deceiver. We, we, we find this like real kind of slimy politician role of Belial in Paradise Lost. I was reading uh, a little online essay by uh, a guy, Jimmy Mayer, on the debate in hell, where Belial is arguing with uh, Moloch, uh, who is uh, fully ready to like storm the gates of, of heaven again, and has that very much that idea of like better to, to die on our, on our feet than serve on our knees. And uh, Belial has a, a very different uh, uh, argument to that. But this, the, but the first appearance, as, as far as I can tell, going through the relevant bits of Paradise Lost again, is um, uh, again this supposed outward appearance of holiness and of, of gentility and of like supposedly being the voice of calm, while in fact having an insidious agenda. It says a fairer person lost not heaven. He seemed for dignity composed and high exploits, but all was false and hollow through his tongue. Drop. And though his tongue dropped manner and could make the worse appear the better reason, and again, I love that, could make the worse appear the better reason, to perplex and dash maturest counsels, for his thoughts were low, to vice industrious, but to noble deeds, timorous and slothful. Uh, and so this this idea that like, Belial's like, no, it is not better to die and be swallowed up and lost in the wide womb of uncreated night. It's better for us to slink away in hell and to like, have, uh, like to get, up to whatever we're doing, corrupting the earth rather than fight heaven, right? And in it, yeah. this argument that like it's not better, like we've already we've already suffered greatly from the fight and from God's initial scourge. That he, he reframes hell as as seems a refuge from those wounds, or when we lay chained on the burning lake, that was surely worse. And um, he goes on to graphically describe various other things, like oh, you thought that was bad? Like God, if we storm heaven again, God is going to go nutsy fucks uh, and spends all this time describing how bad things will be if they do this thing he doesn't want to do. And this is really Mayer's main point, is that like Belial's speech is powerful, but it mirrors the floor in his personality in that he does a really good job of showing the other devils why they shouldn't attack heaven, but offers no alternative plan of action. It's simply a, a refutation of Moloch's position. Which I think that, that does speak to some kind of traditional craft that is more speaking of the devil mythology that was certainly being discussed in lovely Yahoo groups in the 90s, because I remember that far back in my life. But the idea that the earth was created as a buffer between heaven and hell because of the fall, that it gave the devil something to do, and that it was it was about making allowing heaven to be heaven again, that it was the buffer was needed. And then, the, of course, the Jesus thing that happens at time is because, well, these dead got to go somewhere. And if they, we don't want them soiling up heaven, so they must either go to the other place or to heaven. We've got to train them as to how to get into heaven if we're going to preserve the sanctity of heaven. 
So the idea that the earth really is the battleground, which brings up like Constantine type imagery of like, can they, are they actually among us in this world or are they below us? Is the world geocentric or diablocentric in the, in the medieval mind, which is the true center of the onion Oreo? Yes. I'm glad you, I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. The devil in, uh, nobody puts baby in the corner, right? The devil right in the center of things. That made me think of another thing as well in terms of like, are they, are the devils walking amongst us, right? We have the, the notion of Belial is, is said to have tempted and even like corrupted Solomon by, oh, how does Scott puts it that he, he has a, a dancing lady come forward. And in the Testament, that's a reference to the Testament of Solomon, that in, in that Belial danced before King Solomon was among the demons that, that, that work under the king's command, ruled by the magical ring until he isn't. And again, that conflation with Asmodei usurping uh, Solomon and kind of like talented Mr. Rickleying him, yeeting him over the horizon. But this idea that like either Belial sends a dancing lady or disguises himself as a dancing lady. And we also see a disguised as mortal motif with Michael sometimes, same as, um, as Raphael disguising himself as a, a, as a mortal dude to take Tobias on his journey. We also have the Testament of Abraham has this whole notion, which also highlights again, Michael's role as an angel that accompanies you on death's journey that, um, in, in the Testament of Abraham, I think it's Abraham, it, it said that because Abraham does such good work for God, he is rewarded by getting advance notice when he's going to die. And that role is Michael, who is also kind of meant to ensure that he goes to heaven because, because Abraham hears that he's going to die as a favor to get his house in order. And instead, according to the Testament, basically does a runner and Michael is like following him on earth. But Michael is disguised all this time to everyone else as a mortal. And there's a whole bunch of stuff about, again, to get Miltonic, about how Michael has to have a spirit that's sometimes said to be a demon put in his mortal frame's stomach so that he can eat food at a table and not blow his angelic cover. Uh, I, I love this notion of like, he's not the angel of death. He's the angel that gives you the favor of letting you know you got to get your house in order, but he's also the one that's going to chase you down when you do a runner, like God's like bailiff of mortality kind of thing. There's something too. I remember, you know, the notion that the, the, the demons are already in hell, just like the, like, because I remember there's some book where Jesus, some, one of the 5,000 extra gospels where Jesus shows the apostles hell and Belial is one of the named ones amongst them. There's also that other name for Belial that is, I want to paraphrase it and say, <laughs> I'm going to get it wrong. Whereas when he goes, it's not Buka, right? So it's Matan Bukas. And that name gets, I just, even in that passage to say, who is the ruler of this world? Who is Belial, whose name is Matan Bukas. In the essential Isaiah becomes this thing of like, the demon has many names. Like that's, let's understand here. And it, I kind of treat it like sometimes I'm not allegedly in my youth when demons were called more. The idea of almost treating it like Russian literature of mm. everybody has 12 names. I will not be able to pronounce nine of them. And mm. most of the time I will just come up with my own version of what that name is so that when I see it, I don't have to struggle pronouncing it in my name, in my head. So there is this kind of like, practical way of doing it. But of course, if you're, if the name is the power of the thing, then it's, I obviously failed there and thus am ruled by the demonic. But I think it's interesting with the ending and an AL is such a common angel thing. That's, I have two quick points here. 
And yet in this case, it's distinctly all etymology is trying to work away from him having the name God, a, a name of God in his, in, in the name. Inflation with Biliad, as you talked about, the New Testament mentioned. In the book of Julius, men, if you are uncut, you're one of the sons of Belial. Oh, yeah. Which is one of the, oh, it's one of the early Jewish appearances of uh, Michael, Gabriel, and Raphael at the oak tree. And it's Michael who is not set off to destroy Sodom. That's actually Gabriel. It's Michael at all. Oh, is it Raphael? That's given, uh, that's set to heal, I think it's Abraham again, after the circumcision. Yes, mm-hmm. it is Raphael, but Michael is also overseeing both of them. Okay. Oh. There is this conflation in, it's Ike Mandela, if I couldn't say that it's a Reddit thing, it's not a Reddit thing. It was just how gossip worked in, in, in my understanding of the occult world. But the idea that the Egyptians were, their magic was sourced by Belial, that it was Belial that empowered the wizards who opposed Moses. And one of his unique gifts was to control Belial and demons of his ilk, but also that because Egyptian magic was controlled by Belial in this kind of larger parlance, it was also one of the things against in some Rosicrucian uh, documents to talk about, like the use of lower magic was Belial's magic and this kind of like heavy reliance on Egyptian assuming the God form and becoming this kind of golden dot inherited Rosicrucianism that exists but that the practical magic was always the day-to-day life of the Egyptian magician was controlled by Belial and therefore mm-hmm. not was in league with the Lord of this world and therefore anathema for a true servant of the light. It was part of the kind of justification for the why we don't do practical magic. Why Juan doesn't do it. I just made it a Juan. Wow. It was called beating. Or indeed Juanita. One-on-one. But yeah, so there, I think about those kind of mental traps in the, as what happens with a lot of occult texts or non-standard versions, uh, apocrypha of any sort, those are also what someone who is looking for conspiracy theories will ex- immediately cling on to as well as proof as to why they're right. And so Belial, Belial's at work there. Yeah, in the struggle to approach and understand how to integrate the mysteries and the hieroglyphs, the, the sacred writings, the Egyptians. And we see that played out with uh, Dion Fortune's syntheses as well. Like, how do we, this, this, this Egyptian stuff looks real good. How do we be Christian with it? Well, I mean, that's a lovely segue. I mean, she is our dead magician of the day. And uh, so let's dive in because, I mean, Dion is a big character. Yeah. And again, uh, like like Michael, one that people have uh, strong opinions about, at least in their, their place in the in the Western canon. I mean, pretty much coins the term uh, uh, Western mystery tradition, right? Or at least certainly is, is one of the, the major centers of, of popularizing it as a term. So she's Welsh, born right before the turn of the, the last century. Violet, right? Violet. Firth? Violet Mary Firth, yeah. That's a lot of Welsh. I can recognize Carnarvonshire, but there's a Welsh name of a city where she's from. <laughs> and uh, she died on Epiphany, if I remember correctly. Which yes. Is, you know, is its own kind of interesting thing it, and in this post-World War II era. And so the, the, just Dion Fortune herself is, as you said, it's just, she's, I wouldn't say controversial. I would say just, it is so easy because she was prolific, because she did have an impact uh, I believe. Uh, and I think that her impact is lessened by people that are just being sexist for towards the good and the bad there. But her words can be construed in many ways. Mm-hmm. Some of her quotes are very explicit and say exactly what she means. And other times, because of this embracing of the mystery tradition and talking about esoteric things, her words, by the time we get to the New Age movement and as the 21st century, you can either reject any tradition using her words or support any tradition using her words. Yeah, I think that that's a deft uh, uh, framing to begin with. So it's, it's, it's probably worth just pointing out like specifically 
kind of things she's her kind of curriculum vitae. She's a, a co-founder of the Fraternity of the Inner Light, which is frames itself as being about the promulgation and teaching of the spiritual lessons taught by the ascended masters. She becomes the president of the Christian Mystic Lodge of the Theosophical Society and splits from it to form the Community of Inner Light, which is later renamed as the Fraternity of Inner Light. And by 1922, her and Loveday, Charles Loveday, are doing the ceremonies to contact the masters to provide them with the cosmic doctrine, the particular text that's one of the jumping off points. She's also famed for organizing a, a, a regimen of meditations and what we probably now call visualizations during the Second World War to like protect Britain in various ways. She's also a prolific novelist. At least one of the biographers that I was reading, Alan Richardson, is like, she should have concentrated on this. <laughs> so it's like, uh, had Dion devoted her formidable powers and considerable talents to writing pure and simple, she could have been a great novelist by orthodox standards, if not a novelist in the first division. As it was in her last two novels, The Sea Priestess and Moon Magic, she achieved greatness within the genre. Quite simply, uh, says Alan Richardson, these are the finest novels on magic ever written. I think also it speaks to such an important presence of, I mean, an upper-class woman can afford, it's, it's a different relationship to this, these materials. And of course, we have to acknowledge the lodge-based magic of the 20th, you know, late 19th and early 20th century was incredibly aristocratic in nature, but then became kind of co-opted by the neo-pagan movement uh, in the, by the 60s and kind of univory towered in, in many ways, and it goes all over the place. But the fact that we have such extensive ideas about her opinions, of her understanding the importance of material, that the idea that when she goes searching for, I mean, when she comes of age, teenager, early 20s, the Golden Dawn is pretty much dead. I mean, not only is it disbanded, but like Mathers dies, right? During, from the, um, from influenza, he's plague taken. And there's just this idea that the golden dawn by that time, as she describes, it was manned by widows and gray bearded ancients. Um, <laughs> and her kind of foray into everything was, you know, an Irish occultist Freemason, uh, Mr. Moriarty, and continues through this idea of just trying to understand and it's still perhaps as an inheritance of this wonderful extension of the british esoteric which is in, still so informed by the enlightenment and colonialism that it's like it's categorizing all knowledge through a western lens which is the main problem that we can say is that is an identifiable problem that should be generative of discussion if not outwardly fought against but you know different occultists take there and we see and we've we've even talked about this and, and i'm going to mention it briefly, but in, in the post, the, the closing of the second Elizabethan age, let's say, and the kind of understanding of how magic is still geared towards empire in, yeah. through this, uh, especially the 19th and 20th century exemplars that are, that have now informed the entirety of the neo-pagan revival. A revival, it is, it's, I don't know if it's not a revival if it didn't exist before, but like this idea of neo-paganism. And so fortune who becomes esoteric christian but that of course is has influence from druidism other things going throughout all of this and her ideas are considered so universal that they are not thrown out by people that want to go run around naked in the woods and call the moon goddess and that's a specifically there's a lot of kind of this transition that i it really interests me of whether it's the women of the golden dawn which is a fantastic book that i just rem was really happy when i first read it of like let's preserve the fact that this was not just men creating the golden dawn but also understanding that there was a great need for a different form of spirituality that obviously because it answered something of the time and then if we are guilty of of perpetuating that it's because there's still a need or an unanswered uh self-examination of the prevalence of 
the colonial of the co-opting of the universalism that is seemingly a, an act of charity towards the universe to categorize, to channel, and to proclaim. But in essence, is also uh, putting everything into language that is from a very specific perspective. Yeah, and from a very specific time period. Yeah, yes. Sierra. Like, I don't want to. I don't. Again, I like. I think that she is someone who is ultimately both problematic and incredibly important to study. Yeah, absolutely. And again, framing in context shouldn't be about espousing a slippery moral relativism, but the cultural essentialism that's present in her writings is reflective of the time period. And that does come down to stuff around culture, race, and religion. And in some ways that look not just clunky, but uh, racialist, if not if not a, a thing that looks outright racist. Well, there is the kind of Victorian inheritance, right, of, of the English-speaking world. And I will put that in there because I don't want to separate America's occultism that develops in complete tandem with British occultism or informed by going back and forth and Western European occultism in general, which is positing itself as the inheritor of every single great empire that's ever existed, except yeah. the Asian ones, which is curious, right? So like, and again, that gets brought in through theosophy even there, like, but they're still the inheritor of those. So like, let me, let me rephrase. Every single empire that's ever existed, that Western European magicians and the English-speaking world especially consider themselves by the mid-20th century in this kind of progression forward, the inheritors of all of those mysteries, which it, masonry plays into as well of like, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, we built the pyramids, we did really. Uh, and also, and we've talked about this before, and I'm happy to talk about it, and I'm, you know, I don't think I'll get whipped from afar, but maybe... But the American understanding of and importance of masonry in, in the United States puts it at such a high level that it's not acknowledged that these are kind of made up parables, par that they're parables at all. And that the British understanding is absolutely because it has, it comes with an education thing, right? So if masonry is, a, is an upper class thing in, in, in the UK, which even though if it started from a, a, an actual guild and it moves forward, that you're able to design the myths. You're able, you're in on the myth. And then it gets taken into its own kind of, it goes through its own process of what we could call creolization and uh, becomes literal and taken for like the idea that Washington DC gets built as a new Rome and that everybody's got to reference previous empires in order to legitimize their own heinous actions. It, well, of course, well, if that was good for us, so this is going to be good for us as we move forward. I really are going to into politics of this with the current times. No, no, I don't, <laughs> I don't necessarily want to dwell on it either, but I think it's worth pointing out that beyond the like outright militaristic violences, when we say imperialism, there's also this sense of, uh, that, that comes through, uh, you know, a lot in, in, in fortune stuff about this concern with order and properness to particular cultural or even uh, national or even racial, what she calls, where's the phrase, uh, psychic constitutions and this notion of like, quote, the great white lodge gives to each race the religion suited to its needs, right? And so we start to see a bunch of things that are still concerns from a bunch of different sides around cultural exchange, around what does it mean to, to answer the problems of your, of your context and your, and your situation in light of empire still. That's still the thing that seems mostly what she seems concerned about with the mixing of different traditions. And the, the, there does seem some kind of things that look like folkishness as well, that certain peoples of racial backgrounds shouldn't study certain things of other peoples. This idea of like culture shock or as like, like spiritual culture shock. Yeah, it's distasteful to, to pick through it personally, <laughs> like, you know, but I'm also 
We also see that played out in terms of, on, on the one hand, you can read people saying that this, her novels are brilliant at showing what women's magic looks like and what, and the, exactly the role of women in the Golden Dawn and things. While also we have a bunch of feminist scholars also saying these are, these may have been, uh, considered liberatory at one point, but they're just as, as constrictive and categorizing. And again, kind of being picked up to work towards empire in terms of like, okay, yes, you can be a, a moon priestess or a sea priestess, but nothing else. Again, this, like how we approach this stuff and the, the battles we choose to pick dependent on what's actually informing how people are building on this stuff. Yeah. Even this idea of the Western mystery tradition and the esotericism in general, because okay. having attended a, a recent conference, I was, I was curious what the broader definitions of esotericism are past the obvious, like the things we do not speak about which is what it is meant to be understood by a select few that it's interesting that by this kind of democratization, of course, of the esoteric, that this will bring about for her the age of Aquarius and this understanding it, which is still promulgated amongst the upper middle class and the aristocracy, ideally, Mm -hmm. because they are the ones more in line with the ability to do something about it, according to this worldview. Someone can't necessarily do a bunch of lodge magic rituals or study Kabbalah all day long when they have to worry about where the food to feed their family is coming from. Right. To a larger attitude of study and priesthood and what that is and the privilege of priesthood and the privilege of, of book and what that is. And that's pretty much what Claire Fanger, a wonderful historian, has to say about fortunes, not just her, her, herself or her work, but her influence. She emphasizes that they're more practical than philosophical a lot of the time. She calls her a deft synthesizer of ideas and says her continual influence derives largely from her ability to bring different esoteric concepts into a lucid and readily available prose, accessible prose, excuse me. I do enjoy that when we have record like this of someone who's relatively recent in our dead magician, it -hmm. generates a very different perspective, right? Because we have so much of her life, people talking to her as well as her own writings and her influence there. I again emphasize that I do think she is problematic and that should be a jumping off point for discussion. It should be problematizing as well. We should now use it to generate discussion because there is a lot here that is, if you are not aware of her influence, and I do not think it's right to negate her influence into what is now called neo-paganism and therefore almost all discussion of modern magic in some way, this is framed both consciously and subconsciously how magic is talked about. And if recent news has allowed us any reflections, it's that there are a wealth of things around the swords and scepters of tradition and around authority and the earthly wielders of authority and how they legitimize themselves in the eyes of their subjects and themselves. And that uh, a bayonet is a, is, a, uh, is a weapon with a worker at both ends. And I, I wonder about a scepter similarly. I am not a big fan of a product of their times. Right. But we are still, as we've discussed, temporarily, temporally inculcated. Yeah. And there is, just in the same way that it would be incorrect to discuss her without talking about this, the social, political, class movements of the time period of which she is a part of, and loca- locus as well, time-space continuum, that it would also be wrong to dismiss or to not find fault with her specifically as uh, i guess where i'm going with that is like in the idea of figureheads (laughs) which we're talking around that the figurehead is both a product of the system and perhaps a promoter and a victim at the same time and i don't want to emphasize victim as a as a point of like no role it is that we are all it's an incredibly complex thing i don't like a lot of 
Dion Fortune personally. It's just a lot of her stuff is not my specific taste in how I think about the world magically. And I yeah. do not think it is compatible with my main traditions that I do in ever to practice and try understand why it's important to not come in with a Dion Fortune f- framework to no. other traditions that don't necessarily have those things. But that shift and that conflict is something that I think every responsible person should be looking at. Because if you are coming from the post-1960s pagan world, you have Dion Fortune in your DNA. Yeah, exactly. As I she did, and there it absolves you from the influence of Dion Fortune and her influences that were influencing her. It was something I thought about a little bit after a lovely chat about Prospero as well, is this, this notion of like how the early modern brings up all these concepts of what does a, a nation British empire do with its wizards and how does it frame, how is magic framed as this endeavor to, like in the excellent book, go into the spirit world and, and colonize it? What does that mean for Prospero and his island? How do we talk about the use of tradition and, and who it is used against? And speaking of which, I guess that's a kind of a tangent, but in talking about Prospero and Caliban, it made me think because I just started rewatching Clash of the Titans, the original one, which I was obsessed with as a kid, right? But oh, yeah. the understanding there of Calibas and this kind of conflated thing that Clash of the Titans does in its wonderful books. It's making a movie. It's entertaining. And the, the creature effects are a thing. I think about that in the kind of memeology of everything of like things take off, not only because they're important, but because they're received. And that reception is a momentum that is difficult to separate the work from. Yeah. Uh, so I guess there's, the, again, that, that idea of the, what is the memeology of, of Dion Fortune? And, yeah. and, and where does that, where, what are the things that are influencing her discussion of, of, of these topics for exploration. Like she was very anti-sex in anything other than a heterosexual married couple. Although she did promote astral masturbation, psychic masturbation, whatever it's specifically called, but she was very much not a fan of same sex relationships, masturbation in general, premarital sex, free love, anything like that was not her, her thing. And I think it's also important to understand that Fortune herself in exploring, she kind of follows like a Fraserian logic here, which of course influenced all of them. Mm-hmm. And perhaps that is an interesting person to for us to discuss in the future. But the kind of her exploration of the pagan, her exploration of the various mystery traditions was to understand a common esoteric thread that naturally and must include Christianity as part of its expression. So that all of these things are being folded into in that grand bridging way that many people do credit her for of bridging ceremonial lodge magic to modern paganism and specifically Wicca and her kind of being hailed by prominent 20th century, like foundational Wiccans as being a key figure. I do not know of a pagan reading book list from the 80s or 90s that did not include the sea priestess and the goat-footed god and things like this. Like It was part of what you must explore. And this also, this we can speak to this idea of having to fictionalize great concepts, that kind of admonition of, oh, dear God, that's a dead magician I don't want to go into, but maybe we could, of Hubbard, Elrond, and the idea of like the accusation that fiction is how people then create cosmology and find these other things, a uh, way of going through that. And similarly, a great way to codify parables are are intrinsically tied with spirituality throughout history, not just as myth making of saying that like fine you're going to codify cosmology and this is the sacrosanct way that this deity is married to this deity in this story, but an understanding that the literal interpretation is not important there that for the purposes of that parallel it could be created ad hoc through 
familiar stock characters, which is what mythology actually provides, mm-hmm. and a comp- language to discuss things that would be very personal and difficult to discuss on a, if you were referring to people that everybody knew. So you're not going to call out your neighbor's killing of cats to fertilize her roses necessarily. I'm making obviously something up and or whatever the complexity of a specific crime or an interfamily relationship is, but you can then create a myth that answers the need to actually talk about this. So I, well, that brings up an interesting point then of myth as a proto or preemptive gossip, but that's a whole other exploration. Um, <laughs> sorry, I cut you off. No, 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 it's all, no, it's all. No, I, I, yeah, I think so. And I think uh, these are things that we as magicians and as workers existing in communities and of, you know, in, in, in the sodalities of our, our working groups, as well as our, our wider uh, familial, you know, networks of collegiate networks and, and, and acquaintances and things. These are things that, as you say, if you've come up at all influenced by modern paganism, these are things you're going to have to struggle with. Yeah. I think also there's a trail here that's quite interesting to, um, you know, not only is, as discussing, right, the prevalence of certain novels and in the formation of magical identity, and which also following that Fraserian trend. And the reason I bring up Fraser constantly is the Fraser's main thesis helps the study and promotes the study of folklore and magic in a way that we have not seen except through him. But it also proposes that magic evolves into religion. And therefore, anybody that is not classified in a true religious sense is therefore not on par. They're lesser in the evolutionary chain. They're more primitive. And that is the problematic side of it, ultimately, is that complexity of religion and creation of dogma and written texts and things like this is not what religion, again, quote Karen McCarthy at this, it's just like, it is a very or bring up Karen McCarthy and invoke her, I evoke her into the circle of our discussion, that it is an incredibly complex topic and specifically American conceptions and now probably broader English-speaking worlds of conceptions of religion are very difficult to translate into any other cultural context or language in the world. And this it, part of played for the separation of church and state and all these things that we acknowledge that ultimately, can that even be done? But moving forward and through that, the also problematic figure of like Marion Zimmer Bradley, who quotes the unfortunate is, is extremely important for her formation of uh, Mr. Babylon, for her character there. And then that similarly, the Aquarian Order of Restoration or the Restoration, which I believe it was uh, Paxson, Diana Paxson, who's a very big, prominent author, the heathen movement, who uh, is, is a very different read. You know, like this, these, there's a, things evolve and, and ideas change, but there's this lineage of thought in the neo-pagan world and in the pagan world in general is quite fascinating. Even the term, the fact that we're calling it pagan, right? Paganism is not a universal thing. It's not, it doesn't mean something. It's a reaction to something. And is it country dweller or is it just like the non-Chris Lemieux God? It's, but it is not this monolithic thing, just like witchcraft is not a monolithic thing. It is a political accusation originally. And that idea of that does not fly. But part of the very thing we're harping on, or at least I know I am, and I know that you, we've talked about this, but, and could probably harp on more, is that the, I, the West promulgation of these terms has effectively erased other versions of these terms, which is how ideas spread. And that is true. And that is its own form of hybridization, secretization, and things like that going in that we're going to have complexified ideas of this moving forward. But it is important to understand that uses of these terms are not equal throughout history. And similarly, Fortune never saying she's a pagan, but is so worshipped by and explored within modern paganism. Yeah, things don't spring from nowhere. And again, the, the, the process of, of individuation, depending on which 
philosophers or spiritual writers you, you, you're talking about is rarely framed as helpful when it's exclusively a reactionary thing, when it's, I am not this thing, where it's, you know, how, how, again, how is the devil defined as simply not God or as that which fights against God? They, you know, the sons of worthlessness, like all things worth, all things against my purpose are the sons of Belial. All right. those uncovenanted men are the sons of Belial. The concept, and I saw this interestingly and without naming names, it's something that was brought up too during um, early Trump politics, but the use of the term evil mm. is an interesting thing because it's, it's ultimately a religious codification, right? We're claiming that it's against God, it's against light, it's against the good. And that, that part of an interesting side of neoliberalism is its, its adoption of this term <laughs> as being like against the agenda there. And so it's interesting to see when people say something is evil and they might mean a politician, they might mean a specific religious figure, they might mean a, a certain bill that's going to be voted on. And it might be, but it's also interesting to say that this is, it's an evocative language to use this term. And similarly, I think there's a parallel there too, how sons of Belial is used biblically and in scripture of like, this is just against, this is against. Yeah. Uh, there's a certain amount of againstness that is in this. And I invoke that to shun you away from it. The weaponizing of the sons of Belial without even knowing if it is the sons of Belial. The weaponizing yeah. of the term evil, which is something that we then use as like a, it's so bad that we, you should all agree with me. And if you don't agree with me, then you're somehow against God or against conceptions of good. Um, right, 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 right. Which is, which is where we get the uh, crusading mentalities. Yes. That, are also sometimes associated with Michael. Absolutely, very much so. Okay, so this is on, and I, again, I'm not trying to say that the use of the term evil is evil. That I would, that's exactly what I'm not going. <laughs> I think that it's worth exploring that it has weight and it is a call to arms. It is a call to Michaelian in within us. Like we must fight it then. If my friend says it's evil, I must fight with them as opposed to here's the reasons and I need you to make your own judgment, but hopefully you agree with me so we can stay friends. But right. it, is, it is interesting. Yeah, empire is made at the friction where it pushes and tries to make what wasn't empire also empire. I'm going to have to go back and play that again, but yes. <laughs> I think it got away from me a little bit. I'm thinking about like the what, what happens on the peripheries versus what happens in the center, what happens at the seat of power in the thrones versus what happens at the ever-expanding knife point of empire. Yeah, uh, okay. I'm with you. I'm with you. There's something in there of like the... Center who is everywhere, the circumference who is ever expanding and going that way. It, right. the, the idea that, that evil is defines a border to the circle. And it actually goes, interestingly, if we want to bring in that kind of like Sufic understanding, goes against the unity of God or the mm -hmm. unity of the divinity as all things within the human experience are tied to the divine in some way. But it is a specifically Manichaean, Zoroastrian, Judeo-Christian inheritance that we are, that is part of so much of the occult, but certainly in the grimoires. Uh, most grimoires. And that, that lack of a call to evil or a call to Michaelian arms is perhaps what's notable when we see less evidence of it, that it is interesting. The use of Michael as conflated with solar deities within the PGM, right, is a different thing yeah. than that is used to bind and control, but it's not, we still want to use those things to our end. So it's a control mechanism, similarly to how we might in, it, it might influence, oh God, I can't believe I'm just bringing this up now, but the conceptions of the, the Maya at all within certain branches of Umbanda and Kimbanda are like the, the highest thing that controls everything else. The ray of light that dispels the, the demons of the night. Um, right, right. And the idea of, of those, the, the use of the iconography of, of the devils like hiding under Michael's ropes. Yeah, what is, what is it to be vice-regent? And again, that, that development out from if we can exercise devils, we can probably tell them to do other things as well. You know, I wonder in those images too, because like those lovely things where under Michael's cape does have devils under it. Maybe those were his like best friends before mm -hmm. the war. 
Because he's not harboring all the devils, but specific ones, right? Yeah. So it's, it's just... Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We're, we're, all, we're all angels, yeah. Sometimes I feel like we are in an absinthe bar and I want to blame the absinthe, but unfortunately, neither of us is on anything other than just the pure power of intellectualism. Uh, <laughs> uh, the psychic masturbation, Fortunian style of, of intellectualism, but I love to be in the company of it. To frame most broadly, if this is the Feast of All Angels or All Named Angels, like what is the magic we do there? So there are a bunch of specific Mike Lang things that we've already kind of touched on a little bit. But the, to zoom out and think about what angel magic is more, more broadly, as well as what's angelic magic, maybe with a small a there, what's the magic of the divine, is I, I, we go in a couple directions. There's, there's the Grimoric stuff, which again brings up evergreen tensions of theology and sorcery, right, to what extent. Are these conjuration just part of the unfolding of these uh, angelic messengers and agents that have no free will? And if, if we're talking there, we're, you know, we're into the realms of the conjurational stuff of, of where Hebrew angels meet Arabic aerial spirits and Christian exorcism, as we've already kind of touched on. But there's also the angel magic of beaming infusions of divine knowledge like into your noggin direct, the visionary and dream incubation work, or the straight up barbarous words of the notary art. Uh, that we see in, in the Ars Notoria, uh, and we see in the in the work of like John of Marigny, this medieval monk who is trying to work this divine magic, but is unsure if his visions of angels and and the devil are of who's sending them. Right, that classic question of dreams. Seeing his abbot and his monastery doing thoroughly unChristian things in dreams and being pretty freaked out by it. But you also see the, the Ars Notoria being, being worked to have the infusion, not just of like abstract knowledge, but of medical diagnostics is one of my favorite uses in the notory, in, in the, the notorious arts, the notary arts of, uh, you, you know, you say this, this divine prayer and the angels of that hour and of that work will let you know if this patient, what their prognosis is, what their diagnosis is as well, what's going on with them and whether or not they're going to survive it. And that, that's a part of angel magic that doesn't have to, that to my mind doesn't necessarily have to wrestle as much with, is this prayer or is this spell? Because again, you are aligning yourself with the divine. Uh, and so th there feels a certain sense of like kicking it up the chain of like, I don't have to decide in my own head, you know, uh, if the angel turns up, it must be God's will. <laughs> or if something calling itself an angel shows up, and especially if it's in a comely form, then it's totally fine. Well, yeah. I mean, the notion of coming in, in a humane form, it feels very much about like when you look at it, the offices of spirits are very often like, they'll turn up in this monstrous form. And not only is that freaky, you're not really going to get a good answer out of them until they calm down and look human. And so the sense of it isn't just a, a moral nosology of saying, well, if, if the spirit turns up in some way abnormal, then it must be evil. Again, to come back to that, so much as getting them to come, getting them to become human, to come as forth in a humane form, if not a human form, is about regulating the kind of interaction you're going to have. It doesn't mean the information is necessarily going to be more accurate, but it means that you might get more of it. Well, that's the idea that like, you know, if an angel comes in the form of a dog, can it actually speak or is it just going to bark? So like if something is going to speak, then perhaps it does need to turn into, you know, Christmas angels. I like the idea that if a cherub comes to you in the cherubic form, that you have to change his diaper halfway through the conversation. <laughs> uh, which brings up a larger meme, right? Of like memes of the biblically accurate angel that has mm -hmm. been, and often it's like, well, I mean, are the descriptions there. It just becomes any form of this terrifying, right? As opposed to like, okay, the, the four-sided angel of the, often was like a zodiacal angel, sure. 
that's actually mentioned, but there are so many other forms of biblically accurate angel, quote unquote, that have nothing to do with the Bible that are more actually about folk tradition and or late pontification by doctors of the church. But this idea of messenger, the again, tying into concepts of free will, the idea, as you, as you mentioned, that every blade of grass has a, an angel that exists for just enough to say grow over it. And then it, that, that angel disappears. These are the various commands of God put into creation as divine light that is now executing the plan. And I think that was, you know, and uh, Charles, Dr. Charles Porterfield, in, in, I will horribly bastardize his actual opinions on these things or <laughs> statements on these things. But the idea of like, invoking the clockmaker, God, who stands back and watches creation unfold, that can't actually insert himself in creation anymore. But there are things that are the angels are the, are the evidence that God did plan everything out in some form or that is monitoring. And there's certain programming that is done there, a certain kind of AI of like, it has to work on what was in the original plan, but it can adapt and keep right, going. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and it is adapted. And you, you get on the one hand notions of like, is God hiding in heaven because he too is terrified of his creation? Or is this a matter of, you know, what does it mean to give free will and then be like, but not like that? I think about this every time we play civilization as to which route to, per, to pursue, right? Uh, yeah. Or religious or cultural or anyway, ultimately it's all about building a space station first. But we play to our skill sets. This idea of messenger or where this intersection perhaps of, as you're talking about with like Semitic air spirits, aerial spirits that then are conflated with angel, but in other parlances might be conflated with jinn. And like jinn itself being such a catch-all of like the unseen things that are just not angels. <laughs> um, and that is its own whole class of things. So I, I am always curious. I love the, I remember how revolutionary and having seen possession-based traditions well before this revelation, but those always seem so far outside the Judeo-Christian mindset uh, for me as a young Chicano Catholic and adoring all these things that were happening. But the idea that Angelos was like a human that was then possessed by a divine force that goes and impregnates Mary, or that perhaps the covenant form that I understand is like, well, now it possesses. And then of course, that informs depictions like Constantine or Hellraiser specifically, and then Constantine, the movie. (laughs) And then even like Supernatural comes to mind, right? Of Cass and the idea of what being the Michael sword is, if we're going to talk about St. Michael. But not that I want to get stuck in that wheel, but the idea that specifically from a Hellraiser context, that like you're not supposed to directly intervene from either side. You can use people as puppets, but that's it. And it's not for a long time. And that direct appearance in this middle ground, the neutral zone, the no-fly zone, as it were, is quite interesting. A cold war uh, uh, of heaven and hell. Yeah. And certainly Hellraiser has its very like pre-2000, you know, the the the, uh, the millennial, pre-millennial kind of feel that was very helpful in creating that feeling of that environment. And I always wonder about that of like the post after 2000 and then specifically culturally here in, in the New York area, like 2001. Uh, which we just passed the end. We're recording this the day after 9-11. We did record beforehand when we can. It's helpful. But the call to arms of, again, evoking good and evil in, in, in your politics is a call to like, well, you're on the side of the angels. You're on the side of God here. If we evoke the enemy as always evil on the opposition side. Yeah. And there's a piece of uh, plurality here that I don't want to get lost in my comic nerdery here. But if we're going to raise like Hellblazer and Constantine, one of the things that I that was I like the movie if I if I think about it as like existing in an entirely different universe and like a retelling of a bunch of stories one of the things about the movie is that it's firmly set in this Christian universe right 
yeah. and that's yeah. that's it. That's and so it is a, a good versus evil in some sense, and that. You know, uh, spoilers, that also comes with with a twist. Thank you, Tilda, for showing us your true form. But the comics are often based off like beats and the denouement of gangster stories where, you know, con job screws over dukes of hell by appealing to Mexican death gods and like Cami and like some fairies and like, like more a nexus fiction where like every pantheon is real. And they all have an agenda and it's way more complicated than just a Christian goodies and baddies. Which I, speaks to my very um, folk Catholicism love and heart. Um, you, you can have all those things in, in a Catholic worldview. You know, send me the hate mail, it's fine. But the idea, of, I mean, it reflects the magic of its time, right? Especially when you're talking Alan Moore. And like, by the time you go into what this is, Hellblazer becomes a, just a very good exemplar of like, the ideal chaos in many ways. And I think that, that that's its own thing, which we've discussed before, where chaos magic's trajectory is a different form than, yeah. than perhaps it was pre-millennium. But it's specifically because, and I guess the, the book as a metaphor for the middle ground and the world there is so interesting. And if you want to bring in things of similar ilk, right? Like most people I knew had read Hellblazer and The Invisibles amongst many other things, but like this was the culture of the nineties and early two thousands magic was still like informed by this kind of movement of, you had to know everything that there was like, after we got through the kind of promoted universalism, that was the ceremonial magic, the lodge magician tradition of like correspondences and things like this, but still under its codifying flag planting that perhaps the uncertainty was, well, the world's going to end in the year 2000 and now everything is real. Um, <laughs> and so therefore nothing is real and everything is permitted, perhaps. Mm-hmm. But it's not, no, there's, there was no negation of anything. It was this idea that like, especially following the kind of chaos theory of like belief as a tool to be invest that can be invested in anything and therefore all things of the mind are real. It's still, it's an interesting merge that goes from this adoration of the human mind at consciousness and will, but then applies it to a more like, what are the repercussions of placing your belief in something or what are the repercussions of an uneducated interpretation of something? And I say uneducation in the sense of like, specifically lack of cultural context or perhaps promoting an antiquated universalism where it doesn't actually apply anymore because we quote unquote know better and therefore can do better. Right, right, right. And that notion of like what is what becomes considered antiquated itself kind of raises this idea of the dynamism of these of these angel magics, right? To get back to a kind of uh, a point here, like the, the dynamism. So- How dare you redirect back on point? How dare you? <laughs> that sounded way, way, sounded way more like aggressive than I meant it to. I'm, but oh, I'm trying to like trying to spider diagram all these like little notes I'm writing myself. I've been noticing like let, let our topics be nooses that bring us back to the point, as opposed <laughs> to check boxes we must hit. Yeah, yeah, um, exactly. But the idea that like again to rightly problematize the notion of like unending and indivisible and inalienable good and evil like the, to return to this thing again that like the senior demons are fallen angels and the more senior the demon the more likely they are to be called an angel if now like regarded as a fallen angel or an angel of wickedness or something of those sorts and you see this played out in the very grimoric texts themselves as they pass from practitioner to practitioner and are edited and altered and re-articulated. This lovely uh, quote I, I love uh, whipping out from Flaasen and Hubs Wright's Magic of Rogues about the, what I've been thinking about as the verse of the versatile, this notion of like, when do you supplicate to a spirit like a holy angel and when do you command it like a devil? 
and and they point out there there are a number of texts that like apologize for their obsequious language by implying that this approach is a formality for dealing with angelic if fallen and kingly creatures and so this notion of like respectful treatment of demons of high rank appears more common in the 16th century in vernacular manuscripts but it's clear the approach continues and is also regarded as problematic even by fellow necromancers and they point out that like subsequent owners of that particular manuscript they're talking about shame they cross out the english prayers and try and expunge the problematic phrases like i supplicate you supplicate uh, supplico and and leave the more imperious ones like i conjure you uh, untouched and, the, and and that's like the more how do you deal with senior demons that are also fallen angels and are very much about reminding you that they're angels is that there's also this notion of restitutionism that some of these spirits seek not just elevation towards the light as this this abstracted like religious soteriology but also as a a sense that they themselves change over time and yeah. that they have the you know that they they seek to regain their thrones albeit uh, you know and, and in certain texts they'll add in things like even though this is impossible and this becomes another tool in the allurement and the the the, the tricksy tricks and crossroads work of conjurers to dangle the carrots of, of some kind of promotion in hell or, or escape from it for some of these spirits as well. As much as we, we look at demons, we find angels there, and eventually we're going to find demons in the angels as well. Uh, yeah, I, certainly even the, I was, I forgot to bring up earlier, and you speak to this right now of, I love when it's discussed what rank they were. He was on the Order of Thrones before this. He was the Order of Wheels before this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And to an idea of their quote-unquote purpose in, in, the, in the celestial hierarchy before yeah. this too. They're like, if you're talking about thrones that are literally making up the throne of God, their job is to be sat on. Like <laughs> they're so close to God that they're, there's something to that. And they're like, it just, how does this inform the rebellion? Just, and for me, it does bring up the, you know, the very controversial thing of left-handed, right-handed saint and to have both parts of in this one entity, right? This is, which is far, which goes uh, against the kind of literalism, especially of the Christian inheritance of these things. But I think also by the time we get to like, I remember pop culturally, which explained it so well was Princess Mononoke, right? Like mm-hmm. that was a huge thing to discuss the fact of a god demon. Um, they illustrated it very well. That had, of course, is being talked about in, especially in Buddhist and esoteric Christian contexts of like the relationship between the demons and the angels there and what this kind of the tantric Christianity that's proposed. But it, I think uh, it was a, it's a beautiful thing to look at this, like the, that opening scene of the boar right? That is a demon that is clearly trying to destroy life around it, but really it was injured by humans turned from a god, a boar god, which was losing its own evolutionary process of like it had lost the ability to speak because it became a demon. It just went into rage. But then yeah. of praying for or trying to find a way to, to repair the damage that had been done to that spirit, which makes me think immediately of the Exorcist TV series, which I, at least the first season, I didn't watch the second season, unfortunately. I'll go back. That's a novel work. But I love the approach of or the understanding of like, here's the exorcist, which is using, I won't do the huge plot spoiler, but the, the exorcist team is using the traditional exorcism we know of, like the chains of, of God names and, and command and compel that is intrinsic part of Western magic control, use of demons, right? But then there was also this order of nuns that were getting physically beaten up by the demon, but they were using the litany of Laredo in which to kind of bring the demon back to uh, pray for it and to bring it back to an acceptance of God's love and light. Uh, which is an interesting side. And like the, it speaks of the difference, the kind of war, I say in quotation marks, between the kind of new age understanding of demon as well as the the kind of ceremonial magic I uh, do as we talked about is like deep the demons and what that does. Yeah. The, 
last episode. And what does that mean if we if we de biblically accurate ties the angels? Yeah, uh, which has been the problem, like especially since the Victorian era, and certainly church iconography doesn't help. And attendant servants of God that are you know secretly maneuvering things behind the scenes and pulling the strings. <laughs> I don't know this. It's just, it's a lot to, it's fun to consider all of those things. And I do think the modern magical trend that is not specifically for those that consider themselves like Orthodox Catholic or uh, even Orthodox Orthodox, but this idea of fundamentalist or a very by the book Christian that the magical world seems to be kind of bringing in this a different way of working with demons remembering their angelic heritage and which i like what you're talking about of like the evidence for this in certain manuscripts that does exist and certainly the one of the reasons for the popularity or the exploration of the grimoire verum is a different approach right yeah. that just the kind of solomonic like well you must do these things you must call the demon princes of hell in order to uh in order to do the abermelon working and, and make sure that you bound those parts of yourself uh um, right. it brings up the duquette duquettean um, some of right, it's all in your head. You just don't realize how big your head is. And I think I, I, I hope in what we're seeing moving forward is uh, the pendulum finding some kind of point back between. I don't see people using the term spirit friendly so much anymore to mean I don't do any binding or try and boss any spirits around. I I build respectful relationships, which the, yeah, there's evidence that like for a given value of respectful relationship, that's absolutely the case with certain supposedly like black magic grimoires. And that's what's so terrible about them, that you don't go around forcing spirits to do things. But I, I see less less that terminology now than we did even like five years ago. And I the thing I keep coming back to around it outside of, yeah, outside of not wanting to just throw your weight around and maybe you do catch more flies with honey sometimes, more lords of flies with honey sometimes, is what, again, we come back to the circle and what does it mean to have space for things where things can happen properly. Like I, the idea of being respectful with spirits because it makes our lives easier is wonderful and I have all the time in the world for, but the idea of never being able to bind or to exercise or to stand up for ourselves, frankly, is where that kind of the over-reliance on that approach leaves me not just cold personally, but like with some technical questions. How do you call this a safe space if you have nothing to keep it safe with? And again, I don't want to like, valorize like violence or aggression or or having the bigger knife as a as a requirement but there's something around again the difference between being peaceful and being harmless in that and angels have that 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 side too you know on the one hand they're here to administer to god's glorious and benevolent ever-loving plan and on the other hand they're also terrifying forces of the cosmos that have to tell us not to be afraid of them when they turn up Well, it's interesting that you're, you remind me of, um, you know, barring the specific circumstances, but I remember my brother who's career military, right? Saying something that stuck with me very profoundly, like the military is trained to make peace, not to keep it. And the two mm. are very radically different. And it, it's this interesting thing that like confusing the two is a dangerous thing. And certainly the control mechanisms of how, how there are systems. I'm not proposing that they are the only systems or the best systems or even the most known systems. But there are systems where there is a spirit that helps you merely call something. Then there's a spirit that could help you bind the thing so that it's not going anywhere. We know it's the thing you actually want to talk to. And then once that's confirmed, then it's not about imprisonment or anything like that. It's like me calling, I don't know the people you know, you personally, Al, in where you grew up. And I might say, hey, could you call this person and say like, 
by the way, write a Facebook message or whatever it is like, hey, my mate's going to talk to you real quick. I thought they might be a good person to talk to about this job he has for you. Um, that, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And like, it's, it's fascinating to me that one of the most antagonistic rumors in, in Humphrey Gilbert's incredibly choleric uh, conjurations and bindings in the excellent book of the art of magic it, it where he's, he's cursing any spirit that doesn't turn up immediately and do exactly what he wants with like god's ire and the ire of every saint he can name and every angel he can name eventually in the course of their working saint luke the evangelist turns up and says you you've got to stop like all of this shouting and swearing like it's not going to fly if you need to boss some difficult spirits around, I will do it on your behalf. Like th th this idea, even in the most vituperative and like astral bully boy approach, eventually the work says like, this isn't the kind of holiness that we kind of should necessarily be spending all of our time doing. Uh, and so, yeah, again, this intermediary spirit, this senior, this evangelist angel, again, they are perceived as angelic, as, as, as winged and in robes and holding various attributes in the visions that the four evangelists but saint luke steps forward especially as this like force that is both ob obviously more like spiritually senior but is also performing a some kind of service role uh it, it, fascinating it, and that's exactly my point moving away from spirit friendly or spirit antagonistic and there being no middle ground or or way in which you can dynamically shift between them depending on how the encounter is going. And this this final piece, just this last thought I had on angelic and angel magic, and I have been uh, thinking and working on a particular project at the moment. The Nazoth uh, Salter should be, should be out at some point soon. It's certainly on pre-order already. I've got a new book out, and I just so happened to want to frame <laughs> this last thing to do with not just angel magic, but the notion of like the language of angels as, as informed this project of uh, through the angelical operations that get called Enochian or Enochiana of, of Dr. John Dee. The revelations of 1583 give us a, a set of calls or keys outside of a bunch of other systems and hierarchies and approaches and ritual equipment that are also received by Dee and various uh, scryers and seers, especially Kelly. The, that these calls are, are, are written and, and meant to be intoned in an angelical language. And so this idea of one angel magic is the language of angels. And the reason I raise that is not just in terms of, oh, angels speak uh, a certain language, but this idea that the spirits of these uh, experiments and conversations are uncharacteristically clear in how they say, you know, this is the, the language that was infused into Adam. This is the language that, that Adam spoke in the garden that he not only named, but made pacts with all the animals and plants and minerals of the world, that it's the language he spoke to us in, the angels, it's the language he spoke to the creator in, and it's a language that, be, that will be understood not only by angels and in paradise, but in hell, in the depths of the furthest point from that perfection uh, or that lost ideal, that the oceans and that the sky will respond, and that angels as messengers can go everywhere. And this whole thing about what do we, what does it mean to be uh, an agent of some kind of divine in in the place in the dark places what does it mean to bring light to the darkness and what does it mean to be addressed in the language of your former home and when do we stir uh, uh, spirits that get called demons by it and how are they stirred what does it mean to, to to raise the attention of something versus actually work smoothly with it i'm glad you brought it up i mean i think it's i don't think we can talk again on this program especially with your area of expertise historically again it's like when we talk john d like we have to at some point, and I think if we're talking angels, we should 
at least discuss angelical language. I also think that if you're writing a damn book, that not a damned book, but (laughs) that is working in this context, it's absolutely worth exploring because obviously it's going to be generative of conversation because your head is written a book about it and through it. And I know this is, it's interesting because I feel like Nokian is, or the angelical language illustrates some of the points we've talked about even so far, um, as you're hitting on and as, as the idea of at this point, I don't know many people that would swear on their life that the angelical language must be sacrosanctly true, <laughs> Yeah, but it is a curious exploration. And there is this interesting thing that it brings up within the magical currents across Western magic, which is, you know, the concept of barbarous and apes that the magician must not even necessarily have to understand what they're saying in order to right. as long as these things are said, or a certain element of glossolalia is healthy for the mind to kind of go into uh, and express other things. You know, I, I think of angelical language and Lisa Gerard and how not the angelical language, but her idea that the inculcations of language are make her impatient. And sometimes she wants to just speak syllables and sounds and put them to music. And that for her, this is at least in the interview that's in the Towards the Within concert, um, just the, the connection to the divine in that way, which then, of course, makes me think about TikTok and Facebook reels of people speaking light language, which is just glossolalia and strange sign language that is viewed as used in channeled healing sessions, which is, I don't want to overtly make fun of, but it's a, it's a so I won't. Uh, but it, it, <laughs> I'll avoid that completely. But it has a feeling of more reparative for the, per, or more generative of something for the person who is speaking and using their hands and gesticulating than it might for the person who is the patient. However, this, I, I don't know if that's necessarily true. It just means that as a performer, and a performance theorist, I look at that relationship there because I do think some things feel good as an actor and some things feel good as an audience and some things feel mutually good for either. And mm-hmm. what are the marks of modern, postmodern acting theory, which is technically more in line with the classical, is that what you put out is not necessarily what's received. And like uh, an example of such would be that if a character on stage is about to cry for 40 minutes, the audience will cry more than if the character on stage cries. And that there's an attention that's a relationship there, but perhaps this speaks to the idea of artist intent or magician's intent and all these other things that can you squeeze toothpaste back in the tube? I don't know. Can you be the clockmaker god and then you have angels that constantly are like expressing your your blueprints for the rest of time and it, it doesn't always go well. And does this play <laughs> the fact that like this is the third incarnation according to esoteric Judaism, right? Like. Third time round, something happened in the first two, which then plays into Aronofsky's mother of like the simple natures of that. I don't know. I think the conception of language itself is a really important thing, especially for we who draw upon multiple things as texts and and life experience, especially for those who are involved in oral traditions, orality, movement, dance traditions, that what is a text is very different than what was considered a text a hundred years ago. And this informs our magic. It's similarly what is called the language and how does this, we talk about body language, but what is the body language of the angels? What is the body language of light itself? How does light perform light? How do angels perform angel? What marks them as distinctly angelic? Fallen angels are still angels, but they're also demons as as has been said. So I think that's all really wonderfully in there. I also think that I remember one comment and repeating on, I think it was mentioned on the D episode of how our mind needs tricks to bypass itself. Mm-hmm. And this thing sometimes and the barbarous names or specifically crafting invocations from barbarous tongues, quote unquote, I'm not trying to make my own judgment on these tongues. I'm just saying that's what yeah. or, you know, I'll plead to the or Barbanian or bar- Barbanian. Wow. That's not what I meant to say. Iranian barbaric of the codified Troyofakwe and things like this. 
but there is something to it. it. It helps us get in the mood. It's one of the one of the glamorizations that help us get sideways entry into ourselves, into our mindsets, create the set and setting, the trip that we're about to invoke upon ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. And the relationship there to Angelos, to messenger, and the material role of Michael or or Gabriel, either one. It just this, there's something interesting in that connection of the, the whole point of the messenger is that there is a message. And if we take that into kind of David Hines Smith's exploration of like the the voice, the breath, and the speech, the word, the mercury of transmission, the concept of what is being transmitted, as well as the specific voice of the utterance. That these that this relationship then is intrinsically tied into if you're understanding God's kind of perhaps surprise at saying fiat looks and then light creates that as angels, what is the relationship then to angels and speech and to delivering the message. And if we really want to go complete, connect the dots that don't exist, just thinking about like when you talk about messenger of the writer and Lenormand being the first card that brings the rest of the cards to you. And also the one that is, it's it bears news. It's a courier. Yeah. The one that brings. And that being, you know, its own angel in a way. And also curiously, the writer is used as the card for if the client is a gay male and there's not another male card in the deck because they are the male card, they are the man card, then the writer be- can often become used as one of the older ways of signifying a gay man's lover. Is it to be written? So the horse, the writer, notions of possession, of speech, of transmission, and what that is, meaning itself. Then we get into my my happy hotspot. Always good to hear uh, the Norman stuff. And something um, we definitely want to look at more as a style of magic at some point. I think it's, it's on the docket at some point. Yeah, sure. Why not? Everything's possible. <laughs> or even, or even. I mean, that can kind of bring up like a, a bad transition. But like, even the concept of discussing things multiple times. Like, we're coming to a point now where we will have discussed all the tarot trumps soon. We did double up on at least one card, so it will be at least our 23rd episode or 24th episode whereby, because I know we missed a couple episodes even with Tarot completely. Yeah. And also having discussed Geomancy so much and even correspondent Odu, you know, the time may come where it's, those are just layers that are brought in because they're part of our lives and it could be fun to explore other things. Um, because I, I do think both this, by the nature of the topic of angel magic and demon magic, or, you know, we've come up to enjoy the incredible psychic masturbation of theory. <laughs> uh, it, it serves well for the invisible pub that is my ciderless cup. But on that note, there's my awkward transition into <laughs> conjunctio. What is the pub of conjunctio, Al? Oh my gosh. Uh, yeah, there's a, there's the, you can do a couple. So there's, a, oh, all right. Yeah. So you could say hubs. You could say transit hubs. I've definitely done good conjunctio stuff at train station pubs, a place where people come for a bit to wait and then go somewhere else. The exception, and that's where I was like, I don't remember is um, airport bars where they are less of a spot to go to where you can watch people go past and more like someone is walking straight through the bar. That feels a little more via to me. But yeah, we could definitely talk about the bar at, at any crossroads and the idea that like every pub is a crossroads with booze and a roof and even the roof is optional. Right, pub was when you went to to meet dodgy folks, as well as nearest and dearest in your community. That uh, the conjunctio is there at, at every hub, at every place where roads meet and thus diverge. And if we're talking speech, that's also a great place to go with conjunctio as well, which I think is one of its main markers is in not just straddling and and as you say, like we can't live in the liminal. 
it is by its it is by its definition a thing that is uh, transitioned through. But definitely, conjunctio rules like bridges and the meeting of things, the coming together of things, the union of things, whether that's chimeric assemblage or something. I guess, I guess, like there's the bridge and there's the going over the bridge. There's the conjunctio via kind of difference there. But squatting at the center of a grand web, uh, we could say as well, these, this idea of, of, of nexus of, of where things meet, of where vectors spring forth from the middest of midpoints, we could say. There's some stuff around correspondence itself, but one of the, one of the, the features of conjunctio that I've noticed is that it often is galvanized by changing language, by code switching. By speaking in more than one language, by speaking in creoles, in in cants, in in utterances that have more than one meaning, in the confluence of the gift in English that is also gift in German, which is poison, like those kinds of uh, uh, of punning and things like that, like conjunctio, as well as having a lot of stuff to do with the hands and the feet and all of that good crossroadsy stuff, or crossroads in the body and the unfolding of things and the meeting of things, also has a bunch of stuff about speech, and uh, and I found it. It's spirits and virtues very much stirred by, oh gosh, most plants that are called something's tongue, uh, deer's tongue especially, but adder's tongue as well. And this kind of paired lungs and lips of the cosmos inhaling and exhaling in the breath of sympathy and antipathy feels like very in course for conjunctio. And it's with that context that we can then talk about, yes, it's the figure of pacts of like spirit agreements of conjuring in that sense of swearing together, as well as the, the idea of, uh, of not just the crossroads, but the crosshairs. It's helpful in terms of, of making spells land, of making targets attract their, uh, what you're throwing at them, of connecting things up so that, that the dirt that you took from that church is not just imbued once by having been from that church, but is put on a conjunctio marked point and can then remind itself where it's speaking to and from, the grand tin canning of everything to everything else. I think looking at the anatomy of the figure itself, right, as far as, I don't know, this is not always where you go with it. I, I again, invoke the Iberic uh, inherited understanding of points and um, no fire, no earth active here. And like the mutable, like the Although fire is the lack of solidity completely, but air and water as mercurial rubbing up against each other is, it's by its nature, just an in- inherently unstable sign. Yeah. And, and yet has a stability through its instability. It's very much centrifugal force stuff. It's very much, it. we mix at this point of the revolving doors. It's not the union that is like a solid bond that is now unbreakable, us two together, a Fortuna Major or something like that. It's the ships in the night of like, right now we are strange bedfellows and our, our objectives currently matter. We're currently, if not facing the same direction, coming on the same road, if not well, just like town in. Yeah, I think the nature of it being that like, those are the two elements that flow, right? And yeah, it, the flow and the mix. Yeah. That they must, by the nature of a crossroads, like if you're paying attention, you can survive the onslaught of someone coming into your space but you must flow around them. They must flow around you. It's it's actually embracing the actual nature of the sign, which is that it's meant to be temporary. It invokes an almost like the like Letizia like vigilance that must be explored, but not for a creating of joy, but just for passing through. Yeah. And this nature of the doorway again, like that, as you mentioned, like the, you can't dwell in the liminal or it's no longer liminal. That's how that's the creation of Creole is actually what what happens, right? Creolization, as far as part of this larger term through languages of culture and things that has come to be understood, especially in the Western hemisphere, where you're talking about this precise thing that you can't dwell in the liminal. The interaction of two forces creates a third by its nature. And that third will either 
disappear or create something new. And sometimes those things are, again, temporary. Sometimes they become more, give birth to new things and new doorways are created. It's not always just like a Christo exhibit in the park of like the thousand gateways that, that were done with the cloth and everything. If you're always in a gateway, but it's not the same gateway you're staying in. If you want to piss people off, is stand in a doorway. And so I think there's something into that of like, the themes of this, and again, in, in cross comparing to Odu, I'm not trying to say that the same thing in any way. And yet there seems to be some exploration, even if it's the nature of the figure or they have a common origin and it's very unpopular to propose a common origin. So when I am 40 years more confident in these types of things, we can propose that there is a merging of systems that are proposed by Ifa and native traditions in West Africa. However, uh, you know, what he brings up ideas of sudden, like the, the intersection of the lightning and the earth, that there's explosions that can happen because of things meeting. It's by its nature an unstable and difficult sign, but also the notion that like, if you put people ahead of you, you'll be, you'll come in not first. And there's, there's just ideas there that there's a hierarchy that is difficult to explore in this. There's fulfilling only the function of something like perhaps paying too much to the letter of the law, which can lead to disaster in personal yeah. as opposed to the spirit of the law which is a greater bond, but therefore it makes it very difficult to use this as a, a metric. That's the playing with language, the, 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 the notion of like, well, I did what I said, but I didn't necessarily do what you thought I said. Yeah, again, very letter rather than spirit of the law. What does it look like if you're familiar with making rope? It looks like rope being made. So that tying the ends, rope is made. That rope is by its inherent nature an incredibly useful thing, but it is, is, will unravel if you do not, if you do not terminate. So there, it, it speaks of proper boundaries. It speaks of an etiquette. It speaks of, an, of trying to avoid the calamity that can come when you don't tie the ends of the rope, when you don't understand that things can come together, but it must be maintained in a certain way. It's a sign that calls for great discipline. That the air makes the vulture, I think, is one of the proverbs associated with that. The lion shows its teeth in the jungle and the city and uses them in both places. So, for instance, the, the nature of a tool is something that can be struggled with and used. But I, the idea of the handle of the hoe has a head, but no brains. Mm. There's something that can be done very useful with this, but you have to know how to use it. I think that does come through with when you start to look at Conjunctio's specific iterations through the houses, that there's definitely an attendant sense of, yes, all of this lovely, like connecting things up and information and rearticulating things and punning and combining and, and spinning. But there's also very much this sense of danger that like, I think we raised this last time we spoke about it, but like, it's not a sign we like to see when we're asking, are things going to get better? Because it says that the door is open, like there is a one foot in the grave kind of uh, sense, especially if we're talking about fatal accidents or a, an illness getting worse. That like, there's a Pandora's box here a little bit as well. When you call everything to the crossroads, you better be able to deal with everything. And if you are not at your best, if you are ill, then you are also calling the, the spirits and the influences that are going to make that worse. Yeah, this sign has to be placated upon its arrival, at least in what's it in the show system. And that's, it makes me think of, in an, in pulling it back to discussions of today, of like, it is much easier to live in a world where angels and demons are completely separate. The minute you bring <laughs> in that knowledge that they are perhaps the same thing on different days, different temperaments, or different applications, it's dangerous. In the same way that you don't tell a three-year-old that there's no set, like it's not necessarily wrong to hit someone that might be depending on your worldview, but the idea that you later on in life, they'll learn that they want to defend their family, their loved ones, their principles with their body. That's not necessarily a universal tenet, but I'm just saying that you can't tell the three-year-old that there's no right or wrong. And we create those rules in the same way that like, amazingly, I think of the, just the work conjunctio right of like conjunction and 
and how this is the different astrological implications of what those things are, what a, a Kazemi is versus the burning of the planetary planet before it approaches Kazemi, the notion of for the cross of souls in Umbanda, Kimbanda, uh, different spiritual traditions of Brazil, they like everything gathers there. They're sad when we don't want to gather and come together and they're happy when we do gather together as one mm. in, in praising the order of the universe. Right. And that that's, yeah, that's the, the central crossroads when we call, not we, but like that, that yeah, conjunctio feels very much like the calling all the directions that four is a, uh, is a, is a metonym for the four corners, every corner of the world, that it's facing every direction, along with the idea that there's a world tree at that axis. And I think about the shape of it too, right? Like obviously it invokes the crossroad, but this again, this active air and active water point that like with no earth and no fire, no, whichever direction you approach it from, you're stuck in the things that move. And like, it's, it takes just as much awareness of that to get out because there's no natural way out. You're yeah. going to be tossed around. Yeah. So similarly that if you go into a crossroads, like the car is coming from all directions, it's walking into the traffic without checking both directions first. And this, like, I'm just going to walk and it's going to be fine. You know, Times Square, it, there's a side of this that is, and it evokes its opposite of Karker very well in that way. Like there's a certain like prison that happens in the center of the crossroads. If you don't have a purpose, if you don't have a direction, you do not decide. You wait at the edge of the crossroads. If you don't know which way to go, you do not enter the crossroads without knowing. Uh, right. So that's and, how you get my comments. Yeah. So, so there's, there is something there of like, you will be, the, and the, it speaks to the relationship of everything too. I thought about this with like Michael and, or Michael and Tiferet of like, is there, what is Michael in each of the Sephiroth? Like, what is that? How does that explored? Similarly, like, how do all the other signs fit into any sign? So Kunyukjo is this crossroads and this meeting place that like, well, you're going to be bound by the decision of where you go, right? That's the, the, the Kimanda thing of, right? Of like, yeah, you know, the outcomes of your actions are really what we're prisoner to, which is its own form of Karkarian of like outcome. You are bound. This is going to happen. But also there's other things there, like when you pick the way and you know which way you're going, suddenly Via comes in and the relationship of being lost in the crowd and lost in too much decision of populace. And how does the wisdom of Albus like apply to this decision-making process that you have? And yeah. where does Rubius come up? Like, what are the tracks that are on the ground that show you like, oh, that's bad. There's blood off in that direction. Right. Um, so it's interesting to think, but I think it awards us a specific way to kind of reflect on this a little bit more easy than some of the other signs, perhaps. Yeah, the X that marks the spot, right? I love with its this notion of pacting and also this idea of this centrifugal force that if you aren't in the eye of the storm of, you are very likely to be, you are as likely to be tossed around by than you are to be served by. Yeah, this notion of like signing a contract with an X, like denoting that you can't read you can't write and therefore re and, and likely read the language on the contract that you are signing, right? The X on the pact that you didn't read or that you can't read. Yeah. This, yeah, this, this notion of like the, the danger of unknowability, but also where the, again, where the, where the periphery mirrors back into the, the center is mirrored back by the periphery and like, yeah, can you exit from there? Right. And I, I, I mean, in exploring the nature of the signs and this, that I, these reflective signs, especially like as, as is documented by some people, even with doing the, the quadrants that are formed by these reflective properties of that are oh, with, with, yeah, with a line of symmetry, have a line of symmetry. I mean, cause every old Dewey is symmetrical in the sense that like the Medjis are both via via or, or you know, type of mm -hmm. correspondence thing. And I, again, looking at this in the way of an Ogbe of being along a horizontal between the male and the female halves of top and bottom of receptivity and activity of fire, air, and then water and earth along the classical element lines there that Kunyutio and Karker share in this reflexivity in a different way. 
right? That there is one point of active and one point not active, and then it's reflected across a horizontal or a horizon line creates a figure. And these, the interaction of these four are very much explored in Ifar, played out there. And that is the beauty of all these cultural contextualizations and, and traditions that, of course, then are able to keep going and transmit. But I do find it interesting side of this relationship between light, darkness, and the womb-tomb nature of, of Karker, and this flashing nature, temporalness relationship of, of Conjunctio. And the air and water, like the flow of ink, right? Like the ink itself is such a wonderful combination of air and water if we take the pen as an, the intellectual writing of air, um, mm. the flow of water that, that binds us, the, its own Karkarian... A stream of consciousness yeah. <laughs> as well. The stream of consciousness that I'm now currently trapped in, <laughs> no fire or earth to find my way out. But that's also conjunctio, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. We we meet at the crossroads. That doesn't mean we agree. We may like bicker, we bicker and argue as much as we may agree when we meet conjunctio or when we meet others at conjunctio. But we are talking, <laughs> like. But it is a meeting, right? This meeting is hell. We didn't decide anything, but we did meet. Well, speaking of this kind of reflexivity or like active, inactive and meeting things there, you had written me uh, when we discussed our topics, you know, named our topics, which we then by nature give each other time to to look these things up and find what we find interesting. But mustard was mm. the, uh, the plant chosen for today. And you had asked white or black and or both. And I might, of course, my answer is both. Mm-hmm. Um, that by its nature, uh, the, the black and the white mustard is, of course, is going to fit into the idea of the day. The ideas of the day are perhaps more f- uh, find more fruit in the discussion of both types of mustard. Okay, no. As, yeah, porque no los dos. But uh, yeah, so I, mustard is a really freaking big family. Like I think that several of the other plants that we have discussed are a for part of the mustard family. As far as genus and species and things like this, the idea of, of white mustard, especially uh, Samba, um, which is heavily used in Europe, and then Brassica Nigra, Black Mustard, um, specifically there. There's there's more variety than that, as we've discussed. Right, right, right. because Brassicas were into the you know, Brussels sprouts as well, right? Exactly. Yeah, all of the all of the family of, of Brussels sprouts, broccoli, cauliflower, and moving through, broccoli rot, moving through that, as well as like up here, very adamantly garlic mustard, which grows everywhere and was imported as a salad herb by the Europeans to the Hudson Valley. And it's, it's everywhere here, which is, it is a lovely salad herb. But mustard itself and its seeds, which are then used heavily in, as a condiment and a quintessentially like European condiment at that, right? Yeah. Like mustard is a European thing for sure. I mean, it's used elsewhere, but I just find it other than perhaps hot mustard of like Chinese cuisine a specific history there i just associate like mustard and ketchup it's like they're on american tables for a reason right oh learning yeah learning that like hot mustard was a thing that not only is like you know the french is going to be mild and about the flavor but uh, english like coleman's mustard also being yellow so when someone's like is it yellow i'm like yeah it's yellow mustard yeah uh-huh. um, and then <laughs> someone taking a bite without being properly informed that oh this is a hot mustard uh, yes. uh, you know, again, like, yes, I, I know it's an alcoholic cider. Like you could have just said cider, except that's not how it's used. Yes. <laughs> so I, I find that, uh, oh God, it just made me this other thing that I saw that was this about ketchup, but it's still funny. Oh, 
the difference between knowledge, wisdom, philosophy, and common sense. Be, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Be that, that, that knowledge is knowing that tomatoes are a fruit. Wisdom is knowing that tomatoes still go on a fruit salad. Philosophy is wondering whether or not ketchup is a smoothie. And common sense is knowing that ketchup is not a smoothie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, I've heard a version of that, which is playing with the six attributes from Dungeons and Dragons, where charisma is convincing someone that, that salsa is, uh, is in fact a tomato smoothie. <laughs> um, okay, so mustard itself on the magical side, by most accounts that I've seen, mustard is solar, right? This is a quintessentially mm-hmm. solar plant, especially by medieval European herbalism, yeah. not only for the prolificness of its growth, but it does seem to, when it's eaten as a salad green, for instance, you can feel its effect on the digestion of the body because of its slight bitterness. It is, a, it is considered a tonic in that way. It is a helpful plant for humans to be around and ingest. I certainly, the crushing of the seeds to make a yellow mustard is quite interesting in and of that side too. Cause this, I love discussing like, was it Michael Tausick has that book of um, what color is the sacred, but I often, I often love that discussion with kids of what color is the sun and why do we just, why, why is it unanimously yellow in crayon land? But, uh, okay. So any things that stand out for you with mustard specifically past it? I mean, there's lovely medicinal uses and things like that, which are always able to be explored, but. I liked it. I liked it as a topic. And the reason I was, I was excited about uh, why not both is again, this notion of like in its, in the folk magic uses that I'm familiar with, we have black mustard often being used to have the, to have the negative sides of solary damage or, or burning things or confusion. And then the white or the yellow for works of protection, which again, Depends whether or not we're facing inwards or outwards a little bit there already. What's good for expanding my fence is bad for my neighbor's fence, like those kinds of things. And the, yeah, the root of like the sons of darkness in the use of black mustard in various ways to do inflammatory confusion as well, often mixed with like uh, spicier things as well, which um, the, the term itself, inflammatory confusion, I'm pretty sure is, uh, was, was, was taught to me through someone who was trained in, in, in hoodoo applications and formulary. But also we see similar kinds of things in terms of, yeah, I'm interested in when is protection aggressive and when is it reactive and when is it kind of both? And I guess one of the things that, that I've encountered with mustard and, and microline formulary is various like protection sachets over doors and the use of not just white mustard, but the, to bring it back to some angelical and some Edenic contexts, grains of paradise in there very often as well. And so this idea of the protection of Michael as, uh, as evoking one of the angels said to hold the flaming sword at the borders of, of, of Eden. And again, is he keeping us in or is he keeping something else out and, and, and what? So this idea of, of yes, protection as armor or as a shield, uh, the buckler of, of the angels, uh, protection as a sword and the sword of Michael and all the things that that dispels, as well as things that are commonly called like fiery wall of protection. And so the idea of of what is it to know you are going into a, a difficult or an uncertain or a dangerous environment and have protections on you like armor? What is it to kind of landmine your place and to say like, these are only go off to people that I don't want here? Uh, what is it to have like, to, to have those fancy security systems where you, you, you show it your friends' faces and they're allowed in and out, but anyone coming in with harm is going to be met with equal harm. For me, Fiery Wolves always had this kind of vaguely Aikido sense of like, it throws you out as hard as you tried to come at it uh-huh. with. Like, and again, conjunctio being the revolving doors, like the faster you come in, the faster you're going to go out. The slow blade penetrates the shield, etc. <laughs> but moods are a thing for cattle and love play. And love play, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I think the Christian context, of course, has to be like, this is a, this is a par- there's a parable of the mustard seed, right? And this is an extension of how any movement starts off small 
And if it gains momentum, then it, then it, it bears fruition. And in this case, it's describing that the kingdom of God starts off with Jesus' message to his apostles, but that it spreads. So there's also a whole lovely esoteric bent on that within, through the lens of the heresiarchs um, amongst us, that this is how you grab root. So, so you know, mustard is for dominating, promoting ideas, promoting things that uh, this is, mustard allows us to proliferate that way. I also, in addition to all the, like Pliny the Elder talking about the health benefits and things like this, but just the notion of the parable of the mustard seed representing the kingdom of God or, or the specific gospel, that it is being synonymous with the gospel. And probably just specifically talking about uh, Sinapi, which is uh, a black mustard, which grows huge, right? This can grow up to like, I think I grew it once and it was like eight feet tall very quickly. Like it, it, it grows like eight, nine, 10 feet tall. The idea of it is that it was not grown in gardens because it overtook and right. this is held up in the discussion even of the parable of the mustard seed that it's growing in a field like it's god's will that it grows right and it's great that you're yeah yeah what do we do with that which is trying to take over things we don't want that in the nice centers of civilization we want that on the outskirts making more civilization for us whoever us is in this context yeah it's also heavily used in as you say protect protective charms but you know to drive away ghosts in like south asia so there's the, like you're mixing it with salt and throwing it at things and there is still a solar connection there right you're throwing light on the things that need to have the light thrown on them also like there is a a specific it's called the triangle of you when you look up like mustard the science stuff just, I like that it's called that, but it's because the botanist that was looking at it is na- was named Wu Jung-Jun, uh, who's Korean-Japanese botanist who wrote under the Japanese, Japanized, wow, name of Yu Nagaharu. Um, and so the, his projection of this is looking at the fact that there were three distinct versions of mustard being black mustard, the kind of turnip green, and then common ancestor of cabbage, kale, broccoli, and all those other ones. And that these by the three things existing by their nature have to make three more. And this, I think, has been explored by a few of us back in the crazy days of uh, looking at the reflexivity of like the Luriatic Kabbalistic tree of like the first triad that then reflects itself over the veil, you know, into fall. It's an inverted triangle that falls, but the three by its nature must make three more because there is a combination of the corners. And so that's what, when you combine uh, for instance, in the Triangle of View, when you combine uh, rapa and nigra, so so bok choy and uh, uh, black mustard, you're you're going to get Indian mustard. When you combine uh, nigra and oleraceae, which is black mustard and like the kohlrabis, the cauliflowers and stuff like that, by it, so you're going to get Ethiopian mustard. And then if you ca- cross the bok choy and the kohlrabi families, then you're going to get uh, rapeseed or rutabaga, which are uh, it's so cool, like mustard varies out but that's the triangle of you is like it's just a fun thing about plant evolution yeah i'd never come across that that's awesome that's a really fun name so that's, yeah the that's three really points cool. also produce three sides or i.e yeah. where where two of those points uh meet exactly. each other exactly and by the nature of like a conjunctural like thing here if you have uh, there is john of ebro i think wrote the 1500s but talking about like northern spanish and basque cantabrian ideas of number and a similar thing here of like that one by its nature is one thing is the generator, but two by its nature invokes a road. It invokes three by its existence. Two, right. if the minute you have two, you must have three because there is a difference between the two. And this okay. is talked about evenly in, in Kabbalistic number theory, or especially like Western mystery tradition discussion of Kabbalistic number theory of one 
will be get two, which will by its nature must be get three. And then of course, triangle of you notwithstanding will forget six things. Mm -hmm. This is the easiest thing. And then those six things could have a reflection too, which then on the Kabbalistic tree is going to have the lower triangle drop down as well. And then ultimately matter is formed from the interaction of all those things. I just saw also Lon Duquette just posted a beautiful exploration of of this. If it's if things are if you're talking about the unsolved for the the unsolved above all these things, which is often paired up in three as well, right? The yeah. the first triad, which is God, the second triad, which is God because of the reflection, the third triad, which is stability and begetting, and then the world emanates from this. But he had a great Facebook post that kind of showed a a simplistic, and I don't want to necessarily want to go through all of it just because it's his intellectual property. I don't think he shared it so that we could talk about it on the podcast. <laughs> but, but the I am of Keter and the I utter the word and I hear the word, the relationship between those two things, which I'm sure it makes me tickled with going back to David Heim Smith and the, you know, exploring Kabbalist, Kabbalistic theory through a non dualistic lens. The reflection itself invokes dualism. So how can we start to play with that? Three avoids dualism in a different way. But there's always some fun things when these things are used as tool. When anything is used as a tool to generate as opposed to decry ultimate values, um, that is probably more of my interest. Yeah, this, this triangulation is, is really fascinating. Yeah, thinking about the third thing as well as the two opposing, like where is earth between heaven and hell? Like where is uh, the meeting ground of things? Where is the road formed from two, two different directions or where the immovable object meets the unstoppable force. Like what else is going on there? Yeah. The wider context that we seek for ourselves. Yeah. There was one way that like this felt a little bit, uh, must have had a, a language thing to it that I wanted to get at, which is also a wider point. The Agrippa's use of the mustard seed when he's talking about the notion of upregulating or, or innovating or cultivating virtue uh, for, for like operative ritual magic and the natural magic in the course of things that are going on. He uses the example of bruising mustard seeds as a way of talking about why we do ritual at all, which I'm, I'm sure I've, I've, I've rabbited at you before, maybe in some lessons, because I find it a, a profoundly helpful uh, way of thinking about virtue, not just as a set of properties of something, but it's secret powers locked inside it, but of, um, of an engagement with it, which is so the root notion being like, why, when we're doing solar ritual, do we gather sunflowers and like six uh, uh, lights and a gold tablecloth and have all of these like the accoutrement of, of things that we learned from correspondence tables. If the sunflower is already full of solar virtue, why are we doing any of this? Why don't we just go direct to the sunflower? And his, his argument is, yes, things are full of endowed virtue and relationality with each other. And again, virtue is kind of defined a little bit tautologically as, as the power to affect things and the power to be affected by them. That has a virtue to do a certain thing, and the other thing has a virtue to be affected by that thing. So there's this interrelationality already at uh, there, but he says it's ultimately we're doing this to bruise up the mustard seeds, to uh, to remind, to wake up the sunflower that it is solary and has these properties, that it has these relationships, that it has these activities, has these ways of being and ways of doing that make other things do and being in other ways as well. And he he likens that the kind of cultivation of this virtue in into an out of ritual is is also the bruising of the mustard seed is also like holding the paper with invisible ink, which is where we get the, the language thing and the, and the reception of information that like, if you write with, he uses onions, I just come up before the onion of the world and also a French term for pearls I, I discovered, but onion juice or lemon juice as a, as an invisible ink that you then hold over a candle or some heat source. And that heat catalyzes words to become visible and that we are reading the book of nature when we're doing 
magic. So again, this notion of like what looks like it's going to be a really great way of separating spell work from prayer again comes back around to where is your awareness shifted to and from and by what means through ritual. Where do we wake up the the materia? And again, where is magic not just about placing a a magic wishing stone or 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 a super exclusive expensive ingredient that everyone else is trying to source? But where is it, you know, and when is it in the meeting and in the arguing of, of where the materia magica meets the immateria, of the conjuring of it, of, yeah. the, of the waking yeah. it up and the reminding it what it's doing and what the old pacts are and what you want it to do, and that it is a good mustard seed and that it, it, it comes to work and that it, it does not come to do bad things, it comes to do good things. And he's the good things that I want, that you are going to do. I like your sly references. But yeah, no, absolutely. I think that, I mean, it's used in in, in conjure, right? Of, of In hoodoo, of like being used in justified workings, especially mm. if you carry it to court, but it's got to be prayed over first. The missing ad, ad, the missing ingredient in conjure, lo and behold, was conjure. Um, <laughs> yeah. Full time, kiddo. Yeah, very good face. But by the nature there, that mustard seed could be used ostensibly by because of its Christian association there and its its physical properties. We have both a mythological and a observing of its physical nature there because it's not phytochemical that we're looking at. It's definitely not like where it's growing per se that we're being grow. Those are my four pillars of herbalism there. Why we use them, but that if you pray over it, it will do. It will amplify anything that you are doing and so there you know it has the exorcism qualities it has the curse black mustard has huge curse qualities in tantra and things like this i guess it's again because it can be prayed over for any purpose it brings the fire into the body that might that that needs to be again needs to be needs needs to be met with discipline used in a disciplined manner precisely because it it heats us up and gives us this extra ability to do harm as well as good yeah Certainly, there's something really the like the the kind of the, how you make mustard right of grinding down its seeds and adding water to it, like which also has a little bit more heat to it because of that the kind of internal Dijon added wine type of thing too. One other thing I wanted to think about, because you mentioned it there a little bit, like this um, thing that I, I think of as very much about dragon's blood as well. Of the stuff we do about our magic. That isn't necessarily like the fundamental goal of protection necessarily, but the use of mustard, like you said, to to amplify things like the magic we do about our magic, the condiments to our spellcraft that aren't like I'm doing this because I'm using mustard because I want protection, but I'm adding mustard because I want this work to be done justified and I want to like add some fire to it in the same way that like Dragon's Blood has a bunch of things that we use it quote for, but it also augments the way we're doing things the idea of like the condiments to like how we spice it exactly how we want it like the means by which we do the spell work as well as the goal that the spell work is 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 attempting to obtain or to secure or to negate or what have you and that again feels that very conjunctio in the sense of doing conjunctio work alongside the whatever spell you're launching to ensure that it lands like the work we do to ensure the success of our work, which is part of, but not the same as the work itself. Well, I think Amasis or Mieros this, of herbal liquids are seasoned for the deity spirits that they're being programmed to. Part of that seasoning is adding in specific things, which are added into almost all of them, but are indeed, as you're talking about, a condiment that are also often used in food or are yeah. items. So, yes. you know, the relationship between those things, I think there's something there that the, the ubiquitousness of certain in, in Latin American incense blends, it's like benzoin is, is, is suddenly like that is a food upon which all other flavors are just put sprinkled upon. 
that yeah. is predominant in the recipes from the 40s through the 70s, Benjoin. But, you know, in talking about the kind of the danger of the calcification of conjuntio, like the danger in staying in the center of the crossroads, because mustard creates a, a dynamic relationship with wherever it's sown, right? It's trying to take root. Right. Um, something there that it, it's at least a growth of another idea, which then, of course, means in order for one thing to flourish, something else must not be able to flourish. Right. So there, then other plants can't grow. It's, we call them weeds. And similarly, that if you were trying to curse someone, like that, that your ideas and your wishes for them supersede their own, if you're going to do that with that. But I do think of the nature of a pearl, which is our gem for the day, because pearl is one has a huge, much larger definition of what a pearl is before the kind of modern gem market globalization of pearls being only one thing and because pearls are a type of bezoar and therefore is metonym for for all bezoar bezoars um as well that you could have bamboo pearls and elephant pearls and toad pearls and things like this it's known by its process yeah it pearlize something and in fear and in, interestingly in like in alchemical sense like there are of course blinds to what pearl means but that the nature of an animal pearl is worth more on the the rareness or the the medicine rankings than perhaps a bivalves pearl. But ultimately what we're talking about is because it's an animal pearl is made from edible things, from nutritive things, whereas a bivalve pearl is made from sand and has a, an intrinsic value, but is also weighted by the mineral nature of its creation rather than the animal nature of its creation. Yeah. All right. And so there's, there's, there are subtle values there. I also found a, a, a Dion Fortune quote about pearls, which was just interesting, but behold, we arise with the dawn of time from the gray and misty sea, and with the dusk we sink in the western ocean, and the lives of man are strung like pearls on the thread of his spirit, and never in all his journey goes he alone, for that which is solitary is barren. So some sea priestessing in there. And like the idea of nature of the nature of how of things strung, of course, is as is near and dear to both of us, but beads themselves as the trials and tribulations of each pearl, right? That this was something that was uh satanas in the in the inner delicate organs of a living entity that had to coat that stone in something to protect itself. And the uh, a bezoar is similarly formed of hair or ingested material or, or different things to a, you know, that a, a hardened calcined mass and has its preciousness derived from that. And either a pearl is a type of bezoar or a bezoar is a type of pearl, depending on which what your language construct is. When we talk about bivalve pearls and their rarity, and I think of the nature of it's not that every, because not every bivalve is producing them. You, we do get them in oysters a lot, but other bivalves can make them. And I think of the intrinsic value of like Scottish pearls, which are highly treasured because they come like, they're just not that available. No, there's just not as many as opposed to like the man-made pearls, which are like, you can see the bead or rock that they put in or put a bead in a pearl and it just pearlizes the outside of the, of the bead. And then that is, already has a hole through mm. it. Uh, we've both seen those beads back when the bead district was still a thing. But there's something beautiful to the pearl, and its use in 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 medicines is quite fascinating. That it has always been used, like all gems, but the pearl is soft, so it it feels like it can be crushed and and, and used more readily. Yeah, um, it is also the notion of in thinking of like a Michael-like connection that the Persian word for pearl is March becomes Margaret in English, and Saint Margaret and the devil and the and the cross and the blowing up of the devil's head basically with a cross that it ever expands and that type of thing. Like a mustard seed expands in the mouth of the devil. Uh, and isn't that a margarita a daisy as well? Yes, margarita in Spanish is a daisy. Yeah. And uh, which made me think of like uh, Michael's daisies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Michael's Michael's uh the asters that grow after <laughs> his, which often are depicted as whites with yellow centers or yellow with white centers. 
Oh. Even though there's multiple colors of the asters that go. Yeah, but the fact that pearls can go for both salt water and uh, fresh water, but the idea that oysters, especially is the way we would think about it now, right? Not the common clam, but clams, of course, can make a pearl, but mussels, specifically Scottish ones, are, are, are mussels. Good old mollusks. I was, I was struck by how they are a hard thing. I mean, not that hard in terms of like, is it the Mo scale, M-O-H, that the geologists yes. use? Yeah, they're, they're, they're easily crushed, as you said, but like the idea of a, a potentially harder Easter brittle thing formed within the soft tissue, like specifically the mantle of living shelled mollusks, uh, was, was really interesting to me that they are, yeah, that they accrue in these soft fold. There's something remarkable in the strictest sense about that. Yeah. I think about New York history, right? So Cartier purchased the mansion on Fifth Avenue for a matched double strand of natural pearls that had been, that they'd been collecting for a very long time, probably valued around a million at the time. But the, because natural pearls, I mean, the, the, the reason that we can think of pearls as far more common is absolutely because of cultured pearls. Natural pearls are far more rare. I think what the quality is that it's like off the coast of uh, Bahrain, right? Mm. It's like one of like, so the Indian Ocean and the small bodies of water, right? right? It makes sense why there would be a Persian world for a Persian word for pearl. And off the coast of Australia, pearl divers and the site notion of pearl divers of how things go in that way and the kind of um, in Central America and the Caribbean, the idea of someone who dies for a pearl that having to go down 45, 50, 60, 70 feet and make it back up in waters that are highly covered in corals and things like this. Like it's a very difficult thing. And the, the kind of outcry, uh, we might compare it to the outcry against AI art right now of when cultural pearls hit the market of like the complete devaluing of pearls and people are very, the average person is just completely confused mm. as to how to value pearls and what they mean. And of course, Shows the fragility of anything that's a constructed value like that. And also the notion of like pearls being heavenly. And I, I don't just mean like the heavenly is rare and therefore expensive, but like they're considered the dew of heaven in, in their mythic tellings, right? Or the tears of Venus sometimes, but very quickly the idea of the morning dew of heaven. And there's a distinction between the red and the white ones, whether it's the evening or the morning dew. But I was really struck by this idea that pearls were said to be formed if heaven was in order. <laughs> if the heavens were in order. And it, but if the heavens were in upheaval, if there was lightning and thunder, the oyster becomes scared and is said to scatter or close and after expelling the kind of like uh, nations or like in vitro, uh, in vitro uh, pearls. That like, it's not just the blessing of heaven, it, it rains down onto us, but it is a marker of heaven's stability, that it even exists at all. And so this rarity isn't just about how much can I charge for it and artificial pearls bottoming out the market, but the idea that in some level it also is now no longer tethered to maintaining heaven's peace, which is entirely what it's used for, right? It provides peace and harmony in, in, in its more like magical and medical usages, right? It's said to, to provide the virtue of comfort. It cleanses of, of a superf, I can't say that word, superfluity of, of humans, like of all of them. So all excesses, right? Uh, there's an emphasis on calming uh, anger and melancholy. So again, fire and earth, right? Again, it's the active uh, air and water that like cools and soothes and gets things flowing properly, the flow of the blood, the flux of the womb, some links to sight as well, being little, being little clear balls of, of luminescence that it's said to be good for eyesight, also good for memory, the, wet, the, the inward eye, if you want to frame it like that, as well as help against various cardiac passions and the swooning of the heart. So 
So it's head medicine for the heart almost kind of thing. Also that like, it's called the onion in French because it has quote, several garments or shirts. And I like the idea of it having like clothes. <laughs> well, it, obviously the relationship to the specific specificities of its birth and the rarity is giving it mm. value in that way. But the relationship to mother of pearl, right? That, that basically any mollusk pretty much can make a pearl, but it's not going to be pearlescent unless there's nakra, unless there's mother of pearl, because a pearl is made out of mother of pearl. It's just right. the inner shell coating of things like a nautilus, which doesn't, it is, is a much more evolved mollusk and it's a complex mollusk, let's say, than a bivalve. But uh, the pearls themselves are, because the inside is iridescent, it's a product of its time and place, let's say. And yeah. The nature too, right? Because so we have like Gemini cancer overlap in June, but we know that its birthstones are pretty much from the second sign of every month, let's be clear. But the, in my opinion, and are a fairly modern thing, but the idea of the flaming pearl in Buddhism, Hinduism of like being something of an awareness, which when you take it into like the Dharma and this idea of like moving through things that cause suffering is an interesting side. There's something that's calcified suffering and it's calcified as a way of dealing with the suffering, but then creates a beauty. The older, I think Levantine as well, but definitely Persian belief is that pearls are born of rainbows that go into the earth or go into the ocean that pearls are the result. Um, So there's a calcified light thing that's happening there. That's quite interesting. Uh, On a Vedic level, like absolutely are said to strengthen relationships, protect lovers reduce the effects of negative karma, all of which has to do with this kind of like the interesting thing of like the side, the sand, the grain of sand being now coated and protected and welcomed into the body as like, well, I guess you're staying. So, it's, <laughs> yeah. you know, the tears of healing spirits or spirits that have converted to the Dharma, like the pearls help bring acceptance of the universal truth of things. Yeah. So there's, there's a lot of beautiful things there for sure. Pearls are quite fascinating. There's the crushed pearl is, as you said, was used for many things, uh, including the breathe, ease of breathing and things like that, which is interesting because it's, it's also very easy to kind of have an asthma attack with. But uh, uh, I guess the only thing that we have like left over is just perhaps a quick exploration of the emperor, uh, which isn't, I don't think it has to be anything too detailed. It's just that it's, I think we fit along with a lot of these things in our discussion of empire. The, the fact that he's holding the ankh topped scepter or the or at least the sun across the t scepter which is still an ankh, but i'm just giving an alternate description but the emperor as the as the rex mundi right as the absolute rule of the world so like there's this interesting thing of like maybe it is galil maybe it is this kind of wonderful Aryan virtue Aryan as an aries wow but that's that makes too the kind of concept of empire so that was perhaps mm-hmm. not a slip that i meant that i was worried about but the idea here of uh a supreme rulership of the stability of rulership, the protection, the the right to rule is tied up in this card, even more than like the empress, right? Mm-hmm. Who is noble by her virtue of progeny or right. um, generation, whereas the emperor's job is to rule. And interestingly, when reversed is often interpreted as like compassion, that implies that there's severity that is in, when it's upright. And so it has our Mars and Aries very common uh, ascriptions, but also Saturn and Capricorn, which makes sense as well. Yeah. I think of speaking of comics and, 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 and some writings on Kabbalah, I think of the, the tarot episode issue of Promethea, speaking of, uh, of Uncle Alan, talking about trying to do a, a, a full cosmology, uh, a cosmogony, 
trying to talk about the fool as the big bang or the thing that precedes the big bang the emperor the, maybe it's the maybe it's the the magician as the big bang but the idea of trying to build up from the ground upwards of like the carl sagan thing you know to to understand tara one must first invent the cosmos and he described <laughs> emperor to the forces of gravity specifically but the laws of nature that hold a sky over our heads and allow the life of the empress to actually flourish it within yeah. a context of the earth being in just the sweet spot to not be too frozen and cold out with Jupiter and not, you know, uh, uh burning a million degrees, um, uh, uh next to, uh, Mercury, but having this, this sweet spot that allows life, which is actually, you know, a very precarious knife edge. Yeah. The establishment of the boundary that, that allows the vault of heaven to stand is beautiful there. I think there's something in there of the high priestess kind of the dream of the high priestess coming forward, right? The juggler that then goes through the, the establishment of, of Jacob yes. of just figuring out how to create the vault of which, but I also love this, uh, to understand the charity was first create the cosmos, which then speaks heavily to the diviner as being one who manipulates fate by recreating and reordering the cosmos. Right. Your divination. But the sortilege, yeah, the sorcery and the sortilege, yeah. Well, I think um, in the interest of, of not talking forever, <laughs> open-ended on the emperor, perhaps, and yeah. the meditating on our own empires of dirt, thank you, mm. or my own empire of derp, as it were. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it was, it's, I thank you. This is a lovely kind of exploration of things. I think that was a very conjunctio episode. Yeah. Uh, and I really love the, um, in addition to the kind of um, normal exploration, but I really felt that Dion uh, Fortune and Michaelmas opened up a lovely intersection of things that was quite fun to explore. Yeah, definitely. Good to, good, you know, at, the, at that centrifugal force of cross talking and, uh, and crossed ways is some tensions that we also uh, get to work out what we. How, where we stand and how we how we move forward. Yeah, totally. Like those four points on the outer, the top and the bottom of conjunctio that allow the air and the water to keep circulating and causing all matter of movement that this is like the emperor establishing the boundaries of the kingdom in which the yeah. empress generate things, as well as like the boundaries of Michael's policing that allows things that both trap certain spirits here and trap certain spirits elsewhere, the boundary of a circle itself. In the softness of a shell is a... Yeah. And that that which we would call by any other name could be demon, rose, or angel. And that Belial goes from both a specific entity to its own force of otherness, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and of othering. Yeah. Yeah, of othering. The, the recruitment of good to establish that there is an evil that must be fought, especially by the righteous, the state, the good citizen. The, the zealots. The, yeah, the crusade of, the, yeah, of alterity. Those angels that fall in line with God's plan stay angels. Mm-hmm. recognized as such and those who whose programming may have been faulty that mm-hmm. become devourers of the plant and that's thus the lusts of the watchers and the Grigori and the those that fell there's something oh it's lovely the proliferation of mustard of ideas this all podcasts are by their nature related to mustard <laughs> um, and whether or not someone reviews it as white or black mustard is on them right i just know that americans use more mustard than anyone else that's true and uh, Dion Fortune, thank you for being so uh, problematic, problematizing, and generative. I guess the, all that to say, I wish everyone a productive Michaelmas. May light shine where it needs to be shown. And may we all live in blissful denial and ignorance of the things that give us too much trouble. Uh, 
have enough of our shit together to be an emperor and define our boundaries and say, I now am going to deal with this. And uh, always glossolalia with your angels. Always bring in that language. Yes. May you hear as many names as you need to. Yeah. All right. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Al. Thank you, Jesse. And thanks everyone to listening, for listening, to listening. Yeah. Yes. Uh, uh, check us out at radiofreegolgotha.com. Look for us at the Folk Necromancy Group on Facebook. Be sure to check out Al's alexandracummins.com, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, for, for keeping current, we are trying to keep the events page or the whatever classes, lectures page on the website current with our own explorations. But look for us and hopefully we'll want to be seen. And uh, yeah, happy Angel Day. Happy Angelmas, everyone. Do take care.